What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. Although January 1st, 1808 probably doesn't strike most of us as a particularly significant date, Ned and Constance Sublette see it as one of the most important in U.S. history. In their book, The American Slave Coast, they explain that it was on that date that the United States banned the importation of African men, women, and children to be sold as slaves. And while it might sound like a date to celebrate, as the Sublettes explain in their fascinating book, it is probably not. Bringing in more African slaves was halted, not for humanitarian reasons, but to protect the lucrative business of slave breeding that was operating at that time in Virginia. The book is published by Lawrence Hill Books, and I'm very pleased it has brought them to our show today. Hello. Hi. Thank Thank you for having us. And your subtitle is A History of the Slave Breeding Industry. Um, It's a pretty shameful story, and I don't think it's widely known. How much of what you have written about here is even being taught in U.S. classrooms? What is being taught in U.S. classrooms at the moment? You know, you saw the uh, Texas textbook, the McGraw-Hill Texas textbook that uh, caused so much furor a couple of months ago that said that millions of workers from Africa were brought to agricultural plantations in the southern United States, and there's been this hue and cry about it. But most of the fury was about the word workers, which as inadequate or inappropriate to describe the condition of slaves. But what very few people in the media pointed out, and this is kind of shocking to me that how few people caught this, is that whether you call them workers or slaves or whatever, the sentence isn't true. Millions of Africans were not brought to the United States. And that in its own way sanitizes U.S. history because it erases the slave breeding industry. After 1808, the United States slave trade became an entirely domestic affair? That's correct. Even without importing additional Africans, didn't the slave population increase by about 25% every 10 years? 
That's also correct, and uh, there's a reason for that, because we also expanded our territory, and we needed more labor, and uh, there was a great pressure put upon the women of the slave-owning population to increase their childbearing rate, to bear children as fast as possible, as early as possible, and as often as possible. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, February 8th, 2016. So I have been told uh, we are fundraising 2016 invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes.blogspot.com racism hyphen notes.blogspot.com listener supported counter racist radio when you hit the blog uh paypal button is on the right side of the page right top corner uh if you are not into paypal drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address Uh, again huge thanks to all the folks who have supported us Uh, our seven year anniversary uh, seven year anniversary fast approaching Uh, it is listeners who are responsible for keeping us on the air for close to a decade Uh, our broadcast for today uh, i was really looking for it i think i was more excited about this uh, than the big ball game yesterday Uh, i saw this book Uh, being promoted uh, right at the end of 2015, I guess for additional important context, uh, I saw this right at the time that Daniel Holtzclaw uh, was on trial for raping exclusively black females in Oklahoma, a former uh, Oklahoma City enforcement officer. I saw this book being promoted uh, and thought, wow, I I really want to check this out once I I got more details uh, about the text that we're going to talk about. Uh, The name of the book The American Slave Coast. Fascinating material, uh, really, and huge overlap with this book and the book that we are doing for our study session, Mr. Edward Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told. In fact, this book mentions uh, that text several times, so it'll be uh, great timing for folks who are following along. It should be uh, an extra bonus uh, for all the great information that we've got from that text. Uh, One of the authors uh, of this book, uh, in addition to being uh, a prolific author, uh, he is a celebrated uh, musician. Uh, He produced the 18-part Cuba Connection series on PRI's Afro Pop Worldwide. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I saw him for folks, uh, we spent all that time uh, talking about Hurricane Katrina and the 10 year anniversary uh, this past summer. Uh, he was in Spike Lee's documentary, If God is Willing and the Creek Don't Rise, uh, came out in 2010, where he's talking about uh, some of the history of racism in New Orleans and how that manifested uh, with the whole debacle and levy failure in 2005 and and things that happened subsequently. A real pleasure to have he and his wife, uh, the co-authors of this text on the program, uh, Mr. Ned Sublett and his wife, Constance Sublett. Let me see if I can uh, get the correct lines here. Uh, I'm looking for the names. If I can't find the names, let's see. Uh, See, do we have the sublets? Am I guessing, guessing correctly? With so let's try.
try right here. Oh. Do you hear me? Yes, sir, loud and clear. Can you hear me? All right, Constance? Yes, I hear you. Outstanding. And there you are. Outstanding. Grand to have both of you on the program. Real pleasure to uh, discuss your book. Um, I guess for, for our listeners, this might be their first time uh, hearing from you two. Anything that you two would uh, think is important for listeners to know about you all before we get started? Uh, I guess we'll, we'll start with Ned. Really, it's not about us. It's about the book. It's about the work. So uh, my, my Wikipedia bio is terrible. Don't go there. But uh, really, just just read the book because uh, that's to me that's what it's all about right now is getting this getting this narrative out there. Outstanding. Anything that you want to add, uh, Mrs. Sublet? Uh just a lot about uh, the friends and uh, acquaintances that I have had over the years who have helped teach me a very great deal. Okay, right on. Uh, for listeners, anytime we talk about this, uh, I think it's important both of you are white. Is that correct? That is correct. We are, we are, we are socially white. I know uh, for this program, I always start out with my definition for racism. Uh, I use the term uh, racism and the term white supremacy. I use them as synonyms. I use the same definition for both terms, and the definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you think such a system exists? Do you think that's an accurate definition? Ooh, that's quite a definition. My way of thinking about it is to remember and emphasize all the time that racism is more than simple individual ignorant prejudice. Racism is a system that feeds and organizes that prejudice so as to be able to have a subaltern class. And I think that's probably translated into a different vocabulary, something like what you're saying. Okay. Just, just so that I can be clear, do you think the definition that I presented, do you think that's accurate? Say it again. I said just so that I can be clear, the definition that I presented, do you think no, that's... No, no, I mean the definition. Oh, Say okay. the definition again. Yes, sir. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Okay. Accurate? Yeah. Right on. Uh, Mrs. Sublet, do you think that's accurate? Well, as far as I know, I don't know the whole known universe or even the unknown universe, but I certainly would agree with that a definition for the nation that we are living in. Hmm, okay. Um, before I get to your book, I've been trying to ask uh, as many white people that come on the program. Uh, there was a really interesting quote uh, in The Atlantic. Uh, they were talking about uh, racism. This was published in 2014, and it was a non-white author, but as I said, he was talking about racism. And his quote, he said, uh, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. 
And just with the, the first portion of that, I wanted to ask if you think that that is true, since you all are both white people. Uh, do you well, think... Yeah, I mean, I must say, uh, the construction of whiteness is a whole issue that, uh, I mean, I generally don't refer to myself as a white person when I describe myself, but in a two-caste system, I am classified into a white, on the white side, I am of European descent, I am phenotypically white, uh, society extends me white privilege, etc., etc. So that's, I mean, one becomes invested in these things, whether one wants to be or not. It's, uh, it's, a, it's something that you think about and wrestle with every day if you're working with material like this. Uh, I feel like it's important not just to theorize, but to communicate, which is, you know, what the book's for, to try and get this narrative that we've, I've not heard anyone really put this narrative forward out. So I feel like it's got to get out there. That's my main thing right now, is just getting this, getting people to understand that hopefully we can change the curriculum if we get our heads straight, because how do you talk to children about slavery? You know, how do you do this when it's, it gets into things you would prefer children not know about? You know, uh, fifth graders may or may not know, be ready for all of this or knowledge, or they may be, depending on the fifth grader. But when you are teaching kids, not everybody's ready for everything at the same time. So, like, there's this dilemma of how do you really give it to them, but at the same time, they're being lied to from day one. Before they know what it is, they're being lied to from day one about what slavery was. And... Well, well, if I could, you know, can, I, can I hop in really quick? Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just like kind of tripping out on your question here. Right. But that's where, for me, the action focus is right now as to how can we get this out, how can we get this knowledge out there? Right. And I want to try to go through as much material as time will allow in, yeah. in your book. But just yeah. to that question, do you think, even with this material, do you think the white people that you're around, that you know, are they often sincerely and greatly pained by racism? Is that true to your experience? Oh, it depends on the person, of course. Uh, I know a lot of musicians, and they certainly feel that way and certainly are aware of what is going on and has gone on. We've had uh, a lot of discussions about these things. It's also, you know, something that they deal with in uh, their professions. Uh, it just depends on. I, I would say that a lot of people don't. Okay. That's, I, I've said consistently, it's been a little over a year now, and I've said that I, I believe that that statement is inaccurate. Uh, it's just not true that white people, generally speaking, are not sincerely and greatly pained uh, about racism, past, present, future. And a good chunk of the white people that we've had on the program that I've asked that question to, they have also said that they don't think it's true. Uh, but pivoting to your project, uh, the American Slave Coast, a history of the slave breeding industry. Uh, how long uh, did it take you all to put this project together? Five years. Uh, although we started really ten years ago, it really started 
then it, I could even say 15 years ago. This is the fourth book I've written, and to me they're all one big book. But this is, I began with Cuba, then two books about New Orleans. But this book grew organically out of those. However, working on it as a project, just we're not going to do anything but write on this, five years. Wow. And what was the division of labor uh, between you two on this project? I think a lot of the division of labor had to do with, like, Ned digging very granularly into the various subjects, and particularly with the newspapers and doing all that microphone work. For one thing, my eyes aren't really up to that. And I think my greatest contribution was continuing to move the project along, as it is a chronological narrative and starts at you might even say before the beginning of uh, North American colonialism, it was to keep us moving ahead. You can stay in one part of history for a very long time and never come to the end of it, but we had a very particular narrative to relate, which was the development of how we got to this place in this country doing something that has never been done anywhere else, which is a systematic to a certain degree systematic, but it was certainly part of the economic system of breeding captive people in order to increase one's economic profit. And we see this most strongly after we get into the Louisiana Purchase, which is in 1803. So my biggest project or my biggest contribution, I think, was like seeing this larger picture and moving us deeply into the 19th century. Because I'm very happy to stay in the 18th century. Uh, I, I, was the, I did most of the drafting. That is to say, I actually sat down there and banged it out on the uh, keyboard, but it was a full product of both of our heads. It's mostly my voice, but sometimes my voice is her voice because we've been together 40 plus years and sometimes things she said would wind up in the text. Uh, but really, more than anything else, it was talking uh, all the time together about it and making sure that we understood it. We both understood it the same way and understood it correctly. Hmm. One of the, the main uh, tenets uh, of your book, uh, The American Slave Coast, uh, is that it's inaccurate. You heard in the audio clip at the beginning, it's inaccurate that I think many people, uh, when they talk about uh, formal slavery in this area of the world and saying that millions uh, of African captives were brought here, and you all write, by hemispheric standards, the African slave trade to English-speaking North America was petty, according to database-backed estimates by David Eltis and David Richardson, only about 389,000 kidnapped Africans were disembarked in the ports of the present-day United States, the majority of them before independence. We say only that's an enormous number of captives to be dragged across the ocean, but Africans trafficked to the United States territory account for less than 4% of the estimated hemispheric total. An estimated 10.7 million Africans arrived alive to the Americas out of an estimated 12.5 million embarked, leaving 1.8 million dead 
at sea. Uh, just what what do you think is contributing to this, uh, I guess, inaccurate perception that so many of these folks came to the U.S. when, according to the data, that's not true? We've, as our friend Henry Weensex said, um, when we read in Charlottesville, Virginia in the fall, we've chosen to forget this. I mean, this is no secret. <laughs> it's just... It's, it's not what's gone into the, uh, you know, the movie reinforced narrative of what American history was. I mean, if you learn your history from the movies, there was hardly slavery at all, right? Um, and when it does mention, when slavery comes up in the popular narrative, the uh, for a very long time, this utterly racist lost cause narrative uh, dominated, was the standard voice. That really started to change big time in the 1960s, but it's been a long, slow process of change. Hmm. With, uh, do you think uh, that it's possible that this uh, racist narrative and uh, positing that the enslaved Africans, uh, that they were brought from Africa, that that's how the slave population of the U.S. increased, that that's false, that the, really the increase was the product of this breeding industry that you all talk about, forced rape of black females, that that was deliberately left out because people just don't want to talk about uh, the importance, the integral nature that slavery depended on forced rape of African females? People don't want people don't want to deal with this. No, I mean, uh, no, we the, the country has not wanted to deal with this, but it's time to deal with it. Hmm. You, uh, you all, I think without that's without the truth. Oh. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Without the truth being told, it, it's going to be impossible for us to read the country of this poison that has been there from the beginning of, as you say, racism and white supremacy. Wow. I think you all just give a lot of information very early on in the book, and then it just continues uh, throughout that this breeding... <laughs> this breeding Pardon me for laughing, it's true. Right, I mean, yeah, it's, it's in the book, this breeding industry, that breeding forced rape, uh, reproduction of in, uh, captive black people, that this was a commodity, the same way that you would talk about sugar, cotton, rice, tobacco, enslaved black people, this is a commodity. Just can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly. I mean, we call it the capitalized womb, um, the notion that human reproduction had a market value. Um, in terms of rape, it doesn't necessarily mean that a uh, woman was impregnated by force at the moment of conception. It can mean something more when when the when an enslaved female has no consent to give. Uh, how can you speak of anything but rape? Um, when the the way the pressure was exerted on women was to sometimes directly um, through rape, but through physical rape, but also in many other ways. Um, most the most uh, effective method was the fear of being sold south, being sold away from the only life, from the family, from the contacts. From the from their from the familiar uh, network that even in slavery could be there to uh, 
to protect an enslaved person being sold away from that into the much harsher environments of the southern prison camps. That was far and away the most effective method, it would appear. Uh, this Being sold away was generally considered to be the worst thing that would happen. Uh, women were expected to bring children as early as possible, as often as possible, and as late in their lives as possible. And when they couldn't reproduce anymore, they might be uh, evaluated, they might be assessed as worthless. Um, that's what slavery was. And even more tragic than that is that if a woman is successful in producing this kind of capital increase for her owner, her children are then sold away from her. It's a way of continually chewing up the black family. It was, I think that's a very important thing to emphasize that this in this slave breeding industry, which operated by means of economic incentives of all sorts, this but this this slave breeding industry was it was there to keep driving both the family's own aggregation of wealth, the family that owns the woman and her children, while they can continually get more wealthy and marry into other wealthy families, increasing the power of the whole system that is the slavery system, the slaveocracy, the slave breeding system, this way of operating, this system ensured that the black family had no opportunity to do the same thing as it chewed up the family. It really did. And families are suffering from this even now. You cannot increase your family wealth to increase the help that you can give each other, to marry into other families, to create a system of support for education, for jobs, all of this, when you don't have your own family to start with, the family of your own children, your own husband, your own mother, all of that. It's it's one of those things that once you recognize what's going on, you can never turn your back on that again. Mm. You all right. It's it's accurate to say any of these plantations, any time that you have enslaved black people where children are being produced, that just by logic, by definition, is a part of the breeding industry. Is that accurate? That's right. That's absolutely right. It wasn't like Mandingo, you know. It was something, it was a part of the management of a farm. The cash crop that the farm produced, whether it was tobacco, rice, cotton, sugar, the cash crop provided hot cash flow, but the there was very little money in the South that was suitable for the accumulation of wealth. Money was issued, there was no national currency, money was issued by any one of 1,600 different banks, and it was good enough for passing around in town, but it wasn't good enough for accumulating your fortune. And in the South, which was all slavery all the time, there was nothing to invest in. Uh, There was very little industry in the South. The permanent capital accumulation for a 
southern plantation owner, and we're talking about the wealthiest people in the country by this reckoning, the capital accumulation that they had was increasing their human labor force because each of these people, each of these enslaved people was worth X dollars, which meant X dollars of new credit from the mortgage lender, from the bank, from the rich man that uh, you might be mortgaged to, whatever. Um, it, if a child was worth 50 75 $100 at birth, it didn't mean the child was going to be sold right away. It meant that the farmer was now worth 50 75 $100 more on paper. And this was actually new money that hadn't existed before, created in the form of credit, because he now had $75, $100 worth of collateral that he didn't have before and could get more money. So by the time the, the South Carolina started agitating to secede from the Union, by the time the elite of South Carolina, I should say, started agitating to secede from the Union, 57% of the people in South Carolina were the property of other people. And that meant they were on the books as money. So imagine the distortion it caused in the American economy when 57% of the people of South Carolina are part of the money supply. Hmm. One of, in my view, one of the real uh, strengths uh, of your work is that exactly what you just laid out that literally, and this is like the whole premise of uh, the half has never been told Edward Baptist that we're also reading uh, that black people enslaved black people, they are the bank uh, in this area of the world that the credit system, the economic system of the U.S. that is enslaved black people that you see you have tons of primary sources where this is not just you all trying to extrapolate and come with your 21st century logic like no you can see Thomas Jefferson and, and other whites of this time who are saying oh, yes. exactly this that's oh. right that's right I mean you know, the term slave waiting isn't a new one we didn't make it up I mean, you can find it in the writing of Frederick Douglass. Also, in South Carolina, they would frequently denounce the Virginians as the slave breeders who were interfering with what they wanted to do, which was reopen the African trade. That's, a, of course, a major conflict in our book is slave breeding Virginia versus slave importing South Carolina for control of the expanding of the labor supply to the expanding labor, of the expanding slavery nation. And the slave states were gung-ho on expansion. That's why they were so intent on getting Texas, because if Texas is suddenly part of the slave purchasing system, that means that their existing holdings is like having stocks triple. Suddenly their existing slave holdings were worth fantastically more. It was a Ponzi scheme that drove territorial expansion. Mm, absolutely. Just uh, You talk about that being one of the main uh, themes of the book, uh, when the theft of enslaved black people from Africa when that was cut off in 1808 so we're not going to have any more mm -hmm. importing of captive uh, Africans that this is not some sort of uh, humanitarian effort this is not out of any concern uh, for black people on the continent that this is all about people like Thomas Jefferson in Virginia saying hey we will corner the market uh, we will just have a total domestic slave industry we can do our breeding raping of enslaved African females and we will make tons of money just can you speak to that 
Well, Thomas Jefferson did not use the word raping. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's watch where we put those quotes. Uh, he did use the word breeding, though. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I'm afraid that this, that's right. I mean, I wish it were otherwise, but uh, Virginia was, I mean, Virginia was stood to profit from this. It was protectionism. And the other thing about it, though, is it was sold to a nervous public as protection against terrorism. Because there was tremendous fear of slave rebellion, especially after the enslaved of San Domingue rose up in what has become remembered as the Haitian Revolution um, in 1791 in a campaign that lasted till 1804. Uh, this traumatized slave owners. And um, there was considerable fear that the so-called French Negroes would get in, uh, much like the Al-Qaeda fear of more recent years. There was, uh, and there was also very real reason. Uh, many of the people being brought in from Africa at that time were soldiers who had lost the battle and but they were veterans of gun coding, military tactics practicing African armies. They had military training, whereas in Virginia the enslaved were kept uh, carefully away from any kind of military training. And at the same time, Jefferson was demonstrating that he may not have been a really good president, but he was a really good politician because. On one side, he enlisted the assistance of the Southerners in Congress to get them to sign as quickly as possible the abolition of the uh, slave importing industry from Africa, while he enlisted from the North the abolitionist support who did feel that the African slave trade was inhumane. So he had them both going, and he was able to get what he wanted, which was well, it all ultimately came out then that he was a much richer man when that uh, when, when, when that trade was abolished than he was before. But I, I always, for the last word on Jefferson, I always, there's a quote, I always say this in every interview, I just think it's important when we think about Thomas Jefferson to remember this quote. I know of no error more consuming to an estate than stocking farms with men almost exclusively. He's using the word stocking, that is to say, word applicable to livestock, right? I consider, he went on, I consider that a woman who brings a child every two years is more productive than the best man of the farm. What she produces is an addition to the capital, where his labors disappear in mere consumption. Uh, that's, that's Thomas Jefferson, and we've got to remember those words right up there with uh, all men are created equal. Absolutely. Context of white supremacy. And absolutely. Thomas Jefferson didn't uh, use the term rape. I wasn't attributing that term to him, but it is factually correct uh, that whether you're talking his time, present day, it is factually, factually. Yeah, I, 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 I would agree with that. that. Um, I wanted to also uh, make sure that we touched on because I, I thought this was a huge portion as well. You all have so many different incidents of revolts. 
uh, whether it's individual black people, black females who are fighting back and even uh, killing a white person who has raped them repeatedly and what have you. Uh, you talk about the Haitian Revolution. Uh, you all talk about Nat Turner. Uh, there are so many different instances of black people fighting back and not just breaking tools. I mean, actually engaging in violence yeah. uh, against white people uh, to try to combat slavery. And I think that's hugely important because, number one, I hear lots of people who say, well, black people didn't really fight back. They were submissive. There wasn't there just weren't too many uh, revolts in this area of the world, which I do not think is accurate. And uh, the fact that this seemed to be something that white people, as you just said, there was a constant fear of, oh, man, the Negroes were going to lose control. You all talk consistently about how South Carolina they did not get really rowdy about secession until Georgia and Florida were a part of the union where it's, oh, okay, so now we don't have to worry about marauding natives and black people uh, that could harm us. And plus, we're outnumbered in South Carolina. There are a lot more black people than white people. So we can't even participate in some of these national conflicts because we're concerned about making sure that we've got control of our negras. Just can you, can you talk about these revolts, even that a lot of these don't get talked about or get greatly minimized? That's right. I mean, go back and look at Herbert Opsecker's American Negro, Negro Slave Revolts, uh, one of the early of the radical historians publishing in, I think that was 1954, which uh, was an effort at that time, not using modern methods of search, to list as many as he could. It's quite a book. Uh, yeah, there, of course, there was, there was resistance and uprising everywhere there was slavery. In some eras, uh, repression was more effective than in others. Uh, in the three decades uh, between Nat Turner and uh, secession, there, was n there were not big armed uprisings because the repression in the antebellum states was so heavy, and there was no place to escape to. Um, I think that's a main reason. But there was everywhere, at every moment, the enslaved were at war with their condition. It was always war. In every place, there was slavery. And when we talk about slave uprisings, that can range from one person who says, I'm not going to take it anymore, and perhaps suicidally lashes out anywhere from there to the people who ran away. Runaways were a constant problem. Self-emancipation as, as uh, we call it today. All right up to the big wars. The war for American independence, which I don't like to call the Revolutionary War. The war for American independence. Black people were enslaved overwhelmingly in the 13 colonies, and they did not support the slave masters. They were a fifth column at home. Uh, they were considered to be on the enemy's side. Same way as the War of 1812. Uh, many, many enslaved people defected uh, when given the chance, when offered freedom by the British. They did not, by and large, support uh, the the slave masters in their war. And the biggest slave rebellion, we think, was the war that is generally called the Civil War. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation did not just declare people free, it also provided for the enlistment of black soldiers and arming of them, so that for the first time, there was a legal basis for black people to join the fight for their freedom, and once that happened, the war was won. 
Also, though, in the War of 1812, black people were also armed, but they were armed by the opponent, i.e. the British. And many of the people who managed to get free this way, they did fight with the British here in North America, and then when the war was over, they were still fighting with the British. They were still soldiers. They were not sold into slavery, as the propaganda of North America was saying would happen, but they continued to be have military careers. Mm, wow. You, uh, this is another passage that I wanted to read and get your comment on. Uh, you two write, breeding seems to have been something of an obsession for men of property who wanted to create the fastest horses, the best dogs, the cotton bowls that most perfectly fit the human hand and the strongest slaves. From African slave raids forward, marketing people was a process of selection for desirable traits as well as survival of the fittest with clear eugenic implications. Some oral histories recall eugenic practices by slave owners. 82-year-old Charlotte Martin, interviewed in Live Oak, Florida, recalled as summarized by the interviewer that her captor, Judge Wilkerson, selected the strongest and best male and female slaves and mated them exclusively for breeding. The huskiest babies were given the best of attention in order that they might grow into sturdy youths, for it was those who brought the highest prices at the slave markets. Sometimes the master himself had sexual relations with his female slaves, for the products of miscegenation were very remunerative. Uh, these offsprings were in demand as house servants. Uh, can you comment on this passage? Oh, yes. Um, this is really getting into the, you know, the really creepy center of this. This is, I think, one of the reasons why we uh, avoid all of this subject in school. It goes completely against the grain of American idealism that everyone uh, falls in love because you meet your soulmate, uh, that you get married because there is this one person, that we do things because of merit as opposed to appearance or breeding or direction. We don't want to talk about this, but I'm sorry. I just interrupted, Ned. Uh, go ahead. No, that's okay. Um, it's, uh, the, there's really no way to measure a eugenic effect. I mean, there's no, I don't know of any studies that attempt to determine this, and that's just so creepy, I don't even want to go there. And it very easily, that talk of eugenics is, uh, it gets into uh, very, uh, what's the word I want, very uncomfortable territory very fast. Um, not to mention hurtful. Not to mention hurtful. Um, but what we do know is that the owners, slave owners, exercised uh, a. On there's a lot of testimony to the effect of what you just quoted. That owners did want stronger enslaved laborers. That and that's what the brought. The stronger they were, the better price they brought. And this regime did exist for a while. Um, it's it's an utterly creepy subject. 
Mm. This it, it reminded me, I think, in a in a more crude manner. I think Jimmy the Greek, we had touched on him before, where he said this and, and lost his, his. And then you get into that, and then you get into that kind of stuff, and um, then you get into all kinds of racial stereotyping and all kinds. It's really not a you know. There's there's no way to there's no way to quantify anything. People, people are people. <laughs> yeah. hmm. And just for to making sure our listeners, because I'm sure a lot of folks, this is their first time hearing some yeah. of, of this information. But not only mm-hmm. was this something that, as you all said, you can find a lot of the direct quotes, primary sources where people were talking about this. Uh, freely uh, looking for uh, well-bred and uh, slaves, stronger slaves can command a better price. Uh, the appraisal starting really from the moment of birth uh, and saying, oh, we've got uh, a new Negro. That's, you know, another $50 for our plantation and mm-hmm. trying to get the stockiest, the best uh, breed of slaves. Just can you talk about the the etymology? Because I think some of this survives in the way that we use terms uh, when we have terms stock, where you can think of stocks in terms of something on the stock market, finances, or you can think of stock in terms of genes uh, and someone being well-bred. You all touch on the term breeding, uh, where that's, I guess, not used as frequently, but you do have the term well-bred and saying someone Mm -hmm. comes from a a good family or what have you, or even if we're talking about dogs. Just can you talk about how some of this survives in just the way that we use terms? Well, most of all, that plantation system is a farming system, and this is farm management. Farmers breed everything, whether it be grain, cereal, potatoes, horses, for the best that they can get and what will reproduce the most. The whole point of farming is to end with more than you began with. And if it doesn't produce, reproduce, does not reproduce in a profitable manner, you, the farmer no longer uses that kind of grain. The farmer will get rid of the animals that are not producing an overstock, shall we say. So, so much of this terminology comes out of our world past, our common world past, that all, most human beings lived in those kinds of communities up until uh, later in the 19th century. We were still mostly, not just in this country, but in the rest of the world, we were rural folk. So we were all about the breeding of everything. And I think that is one of the ways that this terminology has survived, just as much of our terminology that comes from the Bible that so many of us share has survived into even the 21st century. Yeah, and I want to add that this is where, I mean, this is so hurtful to talk about because what it is saying is that human beings had the legal status of livestock. Uh, we were talking, We've every one of our, Live events has just been incredible. We've been getting the most engaged audiences, bringing up really interesting points, asking great questions. And one of the first ones we did, a young woman in a college said, basically, how could they treat us this way? Basically, was, was her question. And the unpleasant answer is they could do it 
the only way you could do it. I can't psychologize. I can't put myself in the minds of people, of slave owners. But the, they had to be thinking of their enslaved labor force as something less than human. They, there's a great deal of documentation to suggest that what the churches of the day proposed that that uh, Negroes were naturally a lower order and slavery was good for them. This was the this was a common belief in the South. So how can you how can you justify treating people as livestock? The only way it could be done is if they were not quite people. But of course they were quite people. Uh, it's uh, and this is our history as a nation, and this is our history as a nation, and we have to face it. Mm. Context of white supremacy. Read another passage here. Uh, you are right. It was legal nonsense to speak of raping a slave. To own a slave was to have a license for libertine behavior because sexual violation was intrinsic. To slavery. I just want to read that last portion again. Sexual violation was intrinsic to slavery. The slave owner had the full legal right to do with his property as he saw fit, and sexual use was part of the portfolio of privileges. The oral history interviews described forced mating between the enslaved less frequently than they did sex forced on enslaved women by white. Men. I think this is another portion that is routinely left out. People just don't think about slavery as being something that is intrinsically tied to rape and sexual violation. Can you speak to that? Yes, and uh, I want to go back and pick up something that you brought up earlier as well, which is the higher price brought by lighter-skinned people in the um, in slave sales, and especially of young women. Um, who were being sold basically as sex slaves. Sex slaves were known as fancy girls, and they were generally no more than one-eighth black. Um, and they might bring double or more the price of what was called in the market a prime field hand. So, um, and there are, it seems unbelievable that somebody would... Uh, sell their own child into slavery, but uh, our book is just full of examples when that was done, and, you know, we weren't even cherry-picking them. They're just, they're all, it's all over. This was, this did happen. It didn't happen. Every slave owner didn't do it, um, but it did happen, and it happened wherever there was slavery. Mm, wow. You all and you all document these quote unquote fancy girls, uh, very yeah. black complexion, uh, enslaved black people that this the market for these uh, sexually exploited black females was booming in places like New Orleans, where you had a lot of rich white people. And, hey, I can buy me a sex slave, basically. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh there is uh, anecdotal evidence, at least, to suggest that uh, gamblers, remember riverboat gamblers? They really did exist. Uh, gamblers would buy uh, a fancy girl and live off of the earnings they made uh, by renting her out, that kind of thing. Right. Um, it was uh, That was one reason they brought so much money. Um, 
they, New Orleans was, of course, the largest slave market in the country. And when you go to New Orleans, you really have to think of it. I mean, you may go there to get your party on, and that's okay. But you, when you go there to get your party on, you need to, you need to realize what this city is and what it was built on. Mm, absolutely. You know, you need, you need to realize that, I mean, this is like, you know, this, you know, concentration camps were not worse than this, you know. This was, these were, in effect, concentration camps, these big slave markets. And there was Natchez, the highest-priced slave market in the South, which was kind of at the end of the distribution chain. And remember that in, between the 1830s and 1850s, Natchez had um, the, I mean, Mississippi had the largest number of millionaires per capita in the country. Mississippi was the richest state in the country. After the end of slavery, it became the poorest state of the country. Slaves were all the wealth Mississippi ever had. Mm. Wow. Wow. I guess just two quick points on that. Number one, uh, and I think you all touch, I know Edward Baptist, he touches on this as well, uh, and saying when people talk about these fancy girls and them being sexually exploited and, and commanding huge prices, it's not to say that this did not happen to darker complexion black females, but just in terms of market value, uh, they were prized more. This this happened across the board, but just in terms of, of the price that you would command, lighter complexion slave uh, black females would command a higher price in this, not that it didn't happen across the board. Um, and then the second portion I want to bring in is, is it accurate that some of these quote unquote fancy girls that they could command a higher price going back to Jefferson than even a, a strong black male slave that you could think, oh, this person can go out and work in the, in the fields for hours and hours and hours and do lots of work that these fancy girls might even command a higher price. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's right. Wow. Maybe even double. Wow. When I first heard about your book, as I said at the top of the program, it was at the time the Daniel Holtzclaw trial uh, was he hadn't been convicted yet. The trial was still ongoing. Mm-hmm. And I said that this is an integral part as intrinsic to slavery. I think the rape of black people, the rape of black bodies, I think that is a core fundamental aspect of white supremacy culture. I would even say white culture. Uh, and I read your book and I said, yep, this is pretty much supporting what I'm saying. Uh, and I look at the continuum because this did not stop with the end of formal plantation slavery. This continues. We've had Danielle McGuire on the program, her book, At the Dark End of the Street. Fannie Lou Hamer talked about this in the 60s, that black females just could be raped uh, at any time. As I've said, the Daniel Holtzclaw situation. I would even add Abner Wawima, the black male who was sodomized with a plunger in New York. Do you think that's an accurate statement, that the rape of black people is just an intrinsic part of white supremacy culture, white culture? I don't well, I think, it doesn't matter what I think, but from what I have been, I have read in terms of the research for this book, this is something that came home very strongly to me in terms of a continuum of the behavior of the past into the present, is that for slave owners and in a slave society, which the pre-Civil War culture in the South was, it was a full slave society, that it was a given that these men, and even women, too, in various ways, plantation mistresses or the mistress of the house, whatever, had every right in the world to interfere in the most intimate ways 
with their African-American labor force, their servants, whether they be in the house, the field, the slave quarters, whatever. They could interfere in any way, in the most private ways of their bodies. And from there, it also goes into one's head and one's mind, telling their slave, and for, their slave forces what they were to think or not to think, what they were to believe or not to believe, and take it for granted that this is the way it was. And, I, and so that if a woman was in a bad mood one day and she just felt like slapping her, her maid around, she could do that. No problem. This is the way it is. This continued. This, this, this state of mind continues and continues, I think, although I'm a little hesitant because I have not done that kind of research to have statistics and so on, but it feels in so many ways as if this kind of thinking has continued all the way up from before the Civil War, after the Civil War, through Jim Crow, through the Civil Rights era, and it is like back even stronger again among a whole group of people. And one of their ways of trying to enforce this is, well, now I'm going to get into something that I'm not really equipped to talk about either, but it, it's connected with uh, open carry, gun laws, all of this sort of thing. Um, I just want to add that in the five years we've been doing this, it's been like watching the book come to life in the headlines because so many of the things we touch on have had some kind of contemporary flare-up. Um, as we were putting the book to bed, the horrible news of the Charleston Massacre came in uh, when a young racist, well, you know what happened, uh, in Denmark Vesey's church, the, uh, it's followed by this, I must say, I didn't expect this national wave of repudiation of Confederate iconography. Um, and it's important, I think, to get rid of, to, to take down those statues of Robert E. Lee, and it's important to take down those Confederate flags, but we got to go beyond that. Um, I mean, we're, one of the things we talk about a lot is uh, reassessing Thomas Jefferson's play, our national investment in, in Thomas Jefferson as some kind of example of our democracy. Um, I think we've got to take a really hard look at our national institutions, and that's going to be a, that's going to be a battleground. Hmm. I just that that's important. I do want to touch on the because uh, you all mentioned that in the book that this you all published this project right in the middle of Ferguson and, and what happened in Charleston, yeah. South Carolina. But I do want to pivot back to the question because neither of you answered it. And in my oh, view, sorry. it is a very I'm important uh, question. Hit, hit me again. The rape of black people, the rape of black bodies, that that is a central facet of white supremacy culture, white culture. Is that accurate? I think so. Yeah. Hmm. With what you all just touched on uh, with taking down the Confederate flags, I've tried to be consistent. I've, I've been saying for a long time and I wrote about this uh, in my view, uh, the Confederate flag just got thrown under the bus uh, in all of this. And I said, we are literally huh. swimming 
in white supremacy culture. Uh, if you're going to take down the Confederate flag from the state capitol in South Carolina, you have to walk past the statue to Ben Tillman, which did not get taken down. From your book, are we mm-hmm. going to stop singing Francis Scott Key's national anthem? Uh, are we going <laughs> to take that down, too? Because I haven't heard anyone say anything about that. He's mentioned in your book uh, with the, uh, the passage yep. that you all talk about him being a proud, unabashed uh, white supremacist. Yes? Absolutely. Mm, you all right. Uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Absolutely. No, I mean, this This book, I think, I, I honestly have not seen a book that does what our book does in terms of placing this evil at the center of the founding of the nation. You all. And our national anthem isn't the only very well-known, beloved uh, national song or folk song that embalms these things, enshrines these things. The second verse of the state song of Kentucky, my old Kentucky yeah. home, yeah, third Recap- verse, third third verse. Verse recapitulates perfectly the trajectory of what it is to have been sold from Kentucky down to a plantation in, in Louisiana where the person who was sold knows he's going to die because the labor is so harsh. And uh, they don't sing that verse, but it is still the national, uh, the state, state uh, song for Kentucky. But yeah, the question you raise is—I uh, mean, it's the one that we have to ask too. How do you, how do you dismantle an entire, an entire edifice of these kinds of? Like you said, you still have to walk past that other statue once you've taken down the Confederate flag. Um, how how do you establish a new narrative? And that's what we're trying to to help with. Hmm. Wow. You all, I, I thought this was interesting. Um, just when I kept seeing the term uh, body servants uh, pop up, uh-huh. uh, what what are those yes. body servants? Body servant was basically a valet. Um, did whatever, rendered whatever personal services the master required. Or the mistress, for that matter. Somebody had to help button up all those buttons on those pretty crinoline dresses. Somebody had to empty the slot pots, the chamber pots. Someone had to uh, change the diapers for the mistress's baby, all of that sort of thing. So it's like the most personal kind of services that are being rendered. All, all of this deriving, perhaps, from the way monarchies have always comported themselves, certainly in Europe, um, where the uh, the uh, the king would have all sorts of people waiting on all their different bodily needs and functions. Hmm. When I when I kept seeing the term, and you all write in the book, uh, this direct quote, you said there's no uh, there's little or no documentation of male on male intercourse, something unspeakable Mm -hmm. in the era. And this book focuses uh, a lot accurately so on uh, white people raping black females or forcing them Mm -hmm. to have sexual intercourse with other enslaved black males. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you saying you didn't really find any evidence of black males who were enslaved being raped uh, and and sexually victimized? We found evidence of, if not physical intercourse, abuse 
of naked men, which I think we would call sexual violation. I think if you tie a naked man up and whip him until the blood runs, uh, that, in addition to everything else it is, is a sexual violation. Um, we didn't find a lot of evidence of male-on-male intercourse, but that's no reason to assume that that wasn't going on. Hmm. That, only that, that it, well, only that we don't have any record of it. Oh, okay. Okay. That's, that's something that I, I have brought up uh, it, to me when I hear that. That's in Edward Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told, because a lot of overlap mm-hmm. between your two books. You all mentioned uh, oh, yeah. that book in your text as well. And he doesn't mention uh, enslaved black males being raped either. And the problem mm-hmm. that I have with that is that you two have done a lot more research than I have. You're an accomplished author. Mm-hmm. I haven't you know, published any books. Yeah. I know of quite a few works that cite primary sources and documentation of enslaved black males. Uh, being raped. Uh, and some of them, I can give my, my quick list here for folks who are, might be listening in. Uh, Recreating Africa, written by James Sweet. Uh, Thomas Foster, The Sexual Abuse of Black Men Under American Slavery. Uh, Dr. Mwalimbu Baruti, Homosexuality and the Effeminization of African Males. I know Dr. Tommy Curry down at Texas A&M, he has a lot of research on this. Uh, and specifically uh, from James H. Sweet, Recreating Africa. Uh, He has a passage. uh, It reads, perhaps the most violent sexual assaults of slaves occurred in Para in the late 1750s and early 1760s. Francisco Serra de Castro, heir to a large sugar embargo, uh, was denounced for sodomy and rape by no less than 19 male slaves, all Africans. Among those who were assaulted were teenage boys and married men. As a result of these sexual attacks, a number of the victims suffered from swelling and bleeding from their anuses. Uh, Francisco Serrat de Castro apparently infected his slaves with a venereal disease that eventually took more than a quarter of his victims to their graves. The violence and coercion that characterized the rape of male slaves were symptoms of a broader pattern of violence aimed at forcing male slaves to submit to their master's power. Did you want to comment? I had not heard that passage, and I thank you for calling my attention to it. It does not sound like that took place in the United States, Correct. I should mention. Correct, um, yes, sir. That, probably Cuba, right? Go here? Yeah, uh, it, it sounds... Who was P-A-R-A. In sugar, you know, there was... That, that was most likely in Cuba or another of the Spanish sugar territories. Uh, that's what it sounds like to me. I don't know of anything like that from the antebellum South, which is not to say, I repeat, that it didn't go on. Uh, and I, when, let's get out, you know, on email after the show's over. You know, send me these sources because I'd love to check it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just again, uh, Thomas Foster, he's at DePaul in Illinois. Uh, his, uh, it's an article, mm-hmm. not a book, The Sexual Abuse of Black Men Under American Slavery. His is dealing uh, with the United States uh, right. as well as Dr. Baruti, which is also dealing with the United States. But that's, that, it, to me, it just stands out as curious because I, just, I think that's another aspect that just gets conveniently uh, moved to the side and people don't talk about that. Uh, and I think that's hugely important to bring that forward as well, that this was widespread, not just black females. And I also wanted to, to touch this. It's, it's not even correct to say black females. It would be most accurate to say that this is child rape often because we're not talking about uh, grown or adult black females. A lot of times we're talking about teens uh, and you know, children. Is that, can you all touch on yeah, that as yeah. well? 12 year olds, 11 year olds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 
as as early as possible. As, as soon as they were able to bear children, they were expected to bear as many children as possible. Absolutely. Mm. You mentioned uh, the movie Mandingo before, and you talk about that uh, in your book uh, and saying that this is kind of a, a racist uh, depiction of, of some of the aspects of the enslavement of, of black people. Just can you touch on that? Because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are not familiar with that work. Uh, well, Mandingo was a uh, a lurid novel published in 1957 by a guy named Kyle Onstott, um, which um, took place on, an, on a fictional slave breeding farm in Alabama. And uh, he sort of imagined uh, how such a farm would work and um, this is 1957, mind you, when segregation is still an ironclad fact everywhere, um, when um, sexual material is not allowed in movies hardly at all, but is allowed in paperback books. Um, so this is there's a very strong um, element of, of um, sensationalism, porno, kink, whatever you want to call it, to the book. That's, and that said, I think it probably got closer to the reality of slavery than Gone with the Wind, uh, but it, it's really important to realize that when we talk about the slave breeding industry, we're not talking about these kinds of plantations which really couldn't have, there, there could not have been plantations that only raised people. What there were, were, the reason it couldn't be is because people take too long to grow to maturity. Uh, it would, people have to be producing, busy producing a crop which provides cash flow all the time. So many farms, especially in Virginia, were raising tobacco more in order to raise slaves than they were in order to raise to raise tobacco. That is, this tobacco was to provide some cash flow and give the slaves something to do, but the profitable business was the business in people. Um, and this is really not quite the picture that Mandingo gives. And Mandingo was... Uh, and Mandingo was, was uh, I don't know if you saw the movies, they were really uh, hard to take um, with Ken Norton and mm. uh, Mandingo and the sequel drum. Mm. One, of the, one of the reasons, though, too, where, where the uh, tobacco raising, the, the slave breeding tobacco farms in Virginia, it wasn't only, I, I would like to stress this, to give slaves something to do. It was also to train them in ways of work, working in gangs, working together, knowing how to use farm implements, teaching the girls what they needed to know, whether it be in the kitchen or in the fields as well, because it meant that they would have a higher price when they went up on the, when were, were, were sold. Because they had experience, they were trained, they knew how to take orders, they knew how to work together, they knew how to handle a hoe, and so on. Uh, and this is not anything like Mandingo at all. I, I just, the whole idea of, that we had to deal with this in the book, but it's just... It, we, would, yeah, we wouldn't have even mentioned it in the book, except that so it's, 
it's one of the few models that exists out there in the media for talking about this, and a lot of people have come into contact with it over the decades, and so you kind of got to deal with that idea. Mm-hmm. One of the other important themes that I took from the book, I don't know if this was, was something that you hoped readers got, but uh, I thought you all give a lot of evidence that journalism uh, in this area of the world was intensely connected to the slave industry. Uh, in the passage, uh, you all write uh, by the mid 1740s, uh, excuse me, by the mid 1740s, writes David Waldstriker, whose runaway American Benjamin Franklin, slavery and American revolution has informed this section of our narrative. Franklin was the largest paper dealer in the colonies. He controlled paper itself and saw its uses as medium and as money. And you all talk a lot about these obviously runaway advertisements, uh, slave sales, auctions, that sort of thing generates a lot of money for the newspaper journalism industry in this area of the world. Can you speak to that? From the very beginning of the newspaper industry in America, in English-speaking North America, the slavery business was part of its revenue stream. The very first newspaper, the Boston Newsletter in 1706 by issue number, I think it's 10, it's in our, there's a facsimile of it in our book, uh, it's already got an ad from someone who has a slave to sell. Uh, ads for slave sales and ads for uh, recovery of runaways. Both uh, every place had slavery, of course, in the, in the colonial era, although the, the northern states were not plantation systems and total slavery societies the way the, the south would be. But everywhere there was slavery, there, w- there would be these ads in the newspapers. And, of course, once slavery started to get massive in the South, the newspapers are just full of them. There's uh, newspapers, you know, they made their money a lot of ways, newspapers, but this was a dependable revenue source that was always there. And, uh, of course, uh, it was through David Wallstriker's Runaway America that I found this out, that uh, Franklin was a, a partner, Ben Franklin himself, uh, was a partner in the South Carolina Gazette, which was, of course, a uh, the newspaper in the one of the richest markets in a big luxury consumer market, really, Charleston in the 18th century. Um, ran a lot of ads for uh, slave sales and for runaways, and of course, Franklin made a profit from all this. Was part of his revenue stream, and uh, he later in life became an abolitionist, but that was after he'd made his money. He wasn't a slave dealer himself, but he did own slaves himself, only a few, um, and but he owned them for a long, for a large part of his life. Wow. Wow. I thought this was an important uh, passage as well, because I hear people even today, they, they talk about this portion where black people were thought of uh, as three fifths uh, of a person. And you write the three fifths clause did not mean, as some have complained, that the enslaved were considered only three fifths human. Politically, the enslaved were zero fifths human. The three-fifths clause was a politically acceptable accounting gimmick for figuring out how much to rig the national vote on behalf of slaveholders, and it distorted political realities in the United States for as long as slavery 
lasted. Uh, I thought that was extremely important because I do hear that. And I, I think it is it's totally accurate. It's not even three fifths. You're zero. Uh, if you're a black person, not even three fifths. Yeah, thank you for reading that, uh, because that's that's what it was. It was a, an accounting gimmick. The idea was to have South Carolina's delegates to the Constitutional Convention wanted representation based on wealth. Um, that is to say that richest people should have the most votes. Uh, that was That was part of the original intent, if you want to call it that, that was compromised on into the three-fifths clause. Uh, it was, was it to be population or wealth? This was a, a weird compromise that allowed the South to get extra votes on behalf of the number of enslaved people it had multiplied by 0.6, not just um, in the House of Representatives, but also in the Electoral College, uh, it distorted our political system utterly. Wow. Uh, you all reference one of our former guests who's been on the program, uh, Henry Wansek. You already mentioned him in the program where he's written yes. uh, about Monticello and Thomas Jefferson and, and his terrorist activities up in Virginia. Uh, and you talk about uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, who's a, a black legal scholar uh, up in New York, where she, I guess, vigorously dif- disagreed uh, with his assessment of Thomas Jefferson's uh, slave breeding. Uh, can you kind of share some of the details of what her disagreement was and why? Because you say in the book that you you think she was incorrect in her assessment of Weinsack's argument. Yeah, I mean it. Very, I mean it was an odd, odd, odd and very legalistic argument that she made. Uh, Henry was talking about. Um, it, there was a letter that a memo that uh, Jefferson wrote to Washington, responding to questions by the English agronomist Arthur Young, in which apparently for the first time Jefferson had realized that. The, the so-called natural increase of the so-called Negroes was increasing at 4% a year. That is to say, by doing nothing, human reproduction was enhancing their capital by 4% a year. And he's telling Washington about this. Uh, and Gordon Reed objected to that uh, on, a, I thought, a very legalistic ground that uh, he was not speaking of his slaves specifically, but of all slaves in Virginia, and I find that a distinction without a difference. I mean, what Jefferson was saying was that our families of Negroes, that was the phrase he used, he was definitely cut in on this action. And I I mean, I, I don't know, I, I will decline to uh, speculate otherwise about Dr. Gordon Reed, but I was not impressed by her conduct um, in, uh, lead, in really... Uh, Leading a, uh, a slam campaign against Henry's book. A slam. What? What? Pro, I guess. What do you recall that she she took issue with uh, with Mr. Weinstein? The, the, well, this, uh, basically, uh, she well, basically, she was defending Jefferson. You know, and um, I find that pretty mind blowing. Defending him on what grounds? 
on on the I, you know I couldn't figure it out exactly what case she was trying to make. It didn't hold water to me. Um, she's a she's a law professor and she tends to make her arguments in legalistic ways, but uh, you know, publishing uh, going out of her way to publish a diss of the book uh, that that's a pretty strong action to do, and um, I think that. Uh, you know, I think it was entirely out of line because I think Henry Weinsack wrote a great book and substantiated very well what's in it. Hmm. Mr. Weinsack has been a guest on our program, not Annette Gordon-Reed, but Mr. Weinsack, his the material that I read that Mr. Weinsack wrote, I thought did have a lot of constructive information. And he was pretty blunt yes. in his assessment of the, the terroristic activities that were going on uh, in, in Monticello. And that's that's the way it should be described, in my opinion. Master, Master of the Mountain is a very good book. Henry Weinsack's book, Master of the Mountain. I highly recommend it. It's about Jefferson in retirement. Jefferson in his late days on the... Uh, you know, what some people call plantation, or what you might also call prison camp, of Monticello. Mm, right. You uh, you mentioned a little bit later in your book, uh, Francis Kimball Butler. Uh, and yes, Fanny Kimball. Her activity, she was a British uh, actress. She comes here, marries a, a white enslaver. Uh, she writes, eventually down the road, she writes a journal on a residence on a Georgian plantation in 1838 through 1839, where people, I guess, think of her as being an abolitionist, uh, where she's kind of pointing out all the the horrors uh, of slavery. Uh, However, when I read this, to me it read, uh, and I've seen this with white women consistently, where she is more upset that her husband, uh, Mr. Butler, that he is having sexual intercourse with some of the black female slaves, like, oh man, I really have a problem with this if he's supposed to be married with me and married to me, and that led to her angst against the enslavement of these black people. Can you can you speak to that? Well, there's a whole nexus of female issues or feminist issues, if you prefer to call it that way, around Fanny Campbell's experience in the Sea Island uh, plantation of her husband. He had not wanted her to go there, of course, and she, being a strong-minded woman, insisted on going and was horrified by what she saw, and that did include terrible mistreatment of the uh, enslaved women of his plantation, being forced to have so many children and thinking that it was a good thing to do because they would get something and they would, like, try to get her to be more sympathetic to their other problems, particularly those of giving birth and what happens after giving birth and that she might intercede on their behalf with her husband. And this is all true, but also, as you said, she also learned that not only he but his white overseer had been frolicking, shall we say, with their with the women of the uh, slave force. Raping? These were all part, well, of course, that's what, you, what it is, but I'm sure they would call it frolicking. Uh, they were raping them. She did not like that either. Whether, and I'm sure personally it was, uh, was offensive to her, as any woman would feel that way, I suppose. But it was also just, it, it went further than that. And it gets into this whole nexus of things that include how women feel about each other and how women treat each other, what they also can hope for from each other. 
but the upshot was she could not stay with him, and she left him. And fortunately for her, as a white woman with a profession, in a time when this very seldom happened, she had a profession to fall back on, although she was not able to keep her children. Uh, there was, of course, no escape for the enslaved of Pierce Butler's plantation. No, sir. Absolutely. And I, I thought it was uh, significant because uh, I'm of the opinion that frequently when people talk about uh, the antebellum U.S. and uh, abolitionism, uh, that it, it just it gets greatly overblown. Uh, and people talk about a lot of these white people as though they were not racist, if these were white people that were against slavery. And I've just concluded the evidence uh, strongly supports that many of these folks, they were racist. They may not have agreed with slavery, but that didn't mean that they weren't racist. And you point that out uh, with Miss Kimball, where she talks about black people and uh, as though they are apes. Uh, the I mean, it's, it's a pretty remarkable passage, uh, in my opinion, where uh, just to read a little bit of it, it says this. She's talking about some of the enslaved black people on the, plant, the uh, Butler plantation. Uh, this individual does speak, which seems to surprise her. Therefore, I presume he is not an ape, orangutan, chimpanzee, or gorilla, but I yeah. could not, I confess, have conceived it possible that the presence of articulate sounds and the absence of an articulate tail should make externally, at least, so completely the only appreciable difference between a man and a monkey. Uh, and I will stop there. Did you? Uh, yes, and at the same time, she I can appreciate how beautifully these people are singing, and the great musical talent, as you point out so articulately, just because a person is anti-slavery or even an abolitionist, this does not necessarily make one not a white supremacist or not a racist. And there was a big difference between anti-slavery and abolitionism. Um, and people could be anti-slavery without planning to do anything about it and without wanting any black people to be in their state at all. Uh, many of the uh, free states to the uh, north and west had a no colored in their in their constitution, you know, white people will not, you know, free, free, I forget the exact language, free colored people will not enter into Oregon, uh, to name one of the states that did that. Um, so anti-slavery people often could be quite racist. Abolitionism was a much more radical position, and there were relatively few abolitionists for a long time, although I think we would have to argue that all black people pretty much were abolitionists. Certainly all the enslaved were. Um, and this also has a trajectory because abolitionism explodes in 1835, and then it becomes, starts to become a very important and very powerful movement. But abolitionism had been going on. I mean, we argue that uh, one of the reasons that uh, Virginia and Point South were so eager to become independent was to protect the institution of slavery from the growing power of British abolitionism, which could at any point revoke their right to own people and thereby make them paupers overnight. Uh, so we argue that the, the American Revolution, as, as it is generally caused, called, was in part fought to preserve slavery. Um, the notions of anti-slavery and abolitionism 
in all of this run the gamut, like you said, from, you know, people who were very racist to people who genuinely, people who laid their lives on the line. Uh, and the hardest core of abolitionism was also black. Mm -hmm. Great points that I thought you you all made in the book. Um, one thing I, I did want to bring up, this is this is a tendency that I see sometimes, particularly from white authors mm -hmm. when they write about these mm -hmm. subject matters. Uh, where you're talking about this is going back to Fanny Kimball, uh, where you write Kimball shared in the racism of the times uh, and that that mm -hmm. phrasing as though this is <laughs> something in the past. I, I just it's totally inaccurate and particularly with Kimball, where she's talking about black people as apes, because that is a long running thread. That's not just Thomas Jefferson notes on the slate of Virginia. That's all the way up to 2016 uh, with a lot of the way that people talked about President Obama uh, and his yes. campaign. This is something that is employed routinely. I would even submit the fact that the Planet of the Apes franchise that coming out in the during the 1960s and 70s in that context with everything that was happening for that franchise, there was one film in the 20, 30 year period uh, between the late 1970s and 2000. Once President Obama's in the White House, we're going to have the third Planet of the Apes film this summer since he's been in the White House. Uh, that's definitely one thing that, that really stuck out to me. And I said, now see, that's a tendency that I see with white authors and white authors and saying that this is racism of the times as though this is not consistent 2016. Did you want to respond? I think your point is well taken. Uh, the racism of Fanny Kimmel's time had a different vocabulary to some degree, a different way of expressing itself. Um, so you could speak, I think you could speak of the racism of the times in terms of a particular style of expressing it within a particular set of social rules, which are different now. But your point that the race, racism is racism in 2016 or 1816 is very well taken. And I had not thought about that in terms of that latest Planet of the Apes movie and the timing of it. I yeah, had not thought of that. That, that. that is really oh. interesting. Mm. I would I would even tie that with Jennifer Eberhardt if people want hard data and just not a correlation between President Obama being in the White House and there being three uh, Planet of the Apes films released over his two terms. Jennifer Eberhardt, she got a uh, MacArthur Genius Grant uh, in 2014. She's at Stanford University. Her research shows that there are a sizable number of white people. They still associate black people with apes and monkeys. And I think that kind of got, that was not mentioned when she was talking about her genius MacArthur grant and, and all of that. But I think that's hugely important as well, because it, it is exactly the same thing that Fanny Kimball uh, is saying back in the 19th century, that black people, apes. We have a, a friend in New Orleans, a scholar named Felipe Smith, who wrote a book called American Body Politics. Uh, which I highly recommend. And Felipe, I think he coined this phrase, uh, the ape libel, hmm. which is, that's, I first learned the phrase from him. This is, the ape libel is a recurring trope in American culture. Uh, you can see it. Felipe writes about it in terms of the movie The Birth of the Nation, in which the colored actors are expected to sort of assume what he called an anthropoidal slouch. Um, 
but yeah, this is this is unfortunately you'd like to think that these things have been buried, and then comes the Obama presidency and this what? just deluge of racist filth comes at you. It mm. all crawls out from under the rocks. Right, right. We we had uh, a couple people they dialed in with questions. Uh, is it okay for to get a few questions from our listeners? Sure. Okay. Uh, this person, she wrote in a question. She said, a couple years ago, I was with a large group of black high school students at a tour of Monticello. I asked the tour guide how Thomas Jefferson Ooh. made his money. The tour guide seemed to stumble with his answer, but he did not mention slave breeding, which is what I expected him to say. Why do you think <laughs> he was not truthful about the source of income? Uh, I can't speculate. Uh as to his motives. I will say that at Monticello, um, there is a, there is a tour. It's, you can almost customize your experience at this point. There is one tour that they tell you is African American oriented is the phrase they use. And it's the tour of the slave core or the, where the slave quarters was the so-called Mulberry Row, And, um, so you have every kind of people coming into Monticello from, you know, right-wing nuts to uh, African-American students on a field trip. And uh, the tour of Mulberry Row is very well handled, actually, I thought. Um, in terms of in terms of the May, I can't really speculate, but I doubt that they're going to come out and say slave breeding. Um, I don't even mean to laugh, but it's just I'm remembering that place. It's such a strange place. Have you been there? Man, I am ashamed to say uh, I was born in Virginia and I am a University of Virginia graduate and I have not been oh my to Monticello. Oh, my God. It's, a, it's so weird. I put it, It's on my to-do list. It's on my bucket list uh, when I get back to me. It's <laughs> one of the first things to do to go back to Monticello. And perhaps I can even have your book and have a few. I can read your quote uh, where you're talking about Thomas Jefferson and the value that he puts on a black female who can produce. Uh, and take that and see if I can get a response from the tour guide. Okay. <laughs> oh, dear. Those poor Josephs. <laughs> the, uh, let's see. The person that dialed in... Uh, Let's see. I think this is Thomas in New York. Thomas in New York, did you have a question uh, for Ned and Constance Sublet? Yes, I do. How are you? Uh, your line is breaking up. Your line, your line is breaking up, sir. Good evening, Gus. Much Good better. evening to the guests. Greetings, sir. Um, I had a couple of questions for them. Um, is Monticello by uh, Williamsburg by any chance or Newport News? No. Um, Monticello is in Charlottesville, and it's in the Piet, what's called the Piedmont. Um, oh, okay. Because I had been to a plantation in the Williamsburg area when I went on a tour of Williamsburg. I just wondered if that was... Um, Williamsburg is a whole different deal. A whole different deal. Okay. Uh, my question is yeah. for you guys, um, and uh, thank you for coming on the show. Um would you um, agree that all sex on the plantation between whites and black slaves was rape? The way that we talk about this is if people don't have the legal right to say no, they also don't have the right to say yes, right? I mean, you know, 
there is no such thing as consent for the enslaved. So, I mean, what are you going to, I mean, how, how else can you characterize it? Okay, well, that's, okay, that's along the lines I thought, too. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, you, you get, you mentioned, you use the phrase slave mistress at an American university these days, and some young, some student will stand up and correct you. <laughs> All right. Uh, also, um, it's, also in, in the context of this, no woman who was married either had the right to say no. There was no consent in marriage either. So if that is what it is like for the women who are on the top of the social scale, what is it like for the women who are not on the top of the social scale? So it's very are you hard talking to about for, of, You're talking about for white women, you mean? Yes. yes. So it's okay. very hard not to, to say that what happened, the, the, the sexual activity between a, a white man and a black woman was anything but rape. It's very hard not to see it that way. Yeah, I mean, what Constance is saying there is that uh, the, uh, just to paraphrase, is that, uh, I mean, Virginia did not recognize spousal rape as a crime until 1986. Um, wow. I mean, you know, so um, we've come a long way. And when we talk about rape, uh, of course, it um, it puts immediately images of the, uh, this violent act in our mind. Which it was often. Which it often was, but as we emphasize, there were other kinds of coercion that were not, that might not result in forcible rape at the moment of intercourse, but nevertheless occupied to compel a woman to have sex without free choice, since she had no free choice. Uh, very often, she did not have the choice of what enslaved man she would be mated with. Uh, sometimes, often, they slave owners allowed the enslaved to form their own relationships with other slaves in the next plantation or what other times they just said you're with you you're with you you're with you we don't really have good numbers about this okay um, Only why do you think that most why do you think that most books about this period of time that's written from um, a lot of authors, and especially the school books, don't emphasize the slave rebellions, uprisings, and the slave discontent, but rather they give the impression that slaves were happy serving their masters and in the field singing and dancing for joy. Why, why do you think that is to, still to this day? In the, well, historians are certainly not doing that now. Responsible, reputable historians are certainly not doing that shit anymore. Um, but in terms of textbooks, textbooks, as you know, are heavily subject to political manipulation. And the right in this country is very keen on getting in there and uh, in writing the textbooks or forcing the textbooks to be written in a way that tells us a completely fake story. Part of the reason that I'm so personally so involved in all of this, you know, I went to school, I'm, I'm 64, right? I went to school.
school in Louisiana when I was a boy in the 50s, so you know I went to a segregated public school, was kept away from black people. Our town, I lived in Natchitoches, Louisiana, it was a half-white, half-black town. I was never in the same social space as another, as a black kid, so never had an opportunity for a conversation. And I would, and I heard all, the, I heard lies in school constantly. Uh, this has been the normative condition, especially, but not only in the South. I mean, to some degree, it's true of schools everywhere. Schools are an instrument of socialization and political indoctrination. But especially in this country and especially in the South, uh, we've had very heavy political manipulation of what the, uh, the story that's told is allowed to be. And I'll say once again, one thing we really hope to do with this book is push push toward changing the curriculum. Uh, we've got to tell the real story. Well, do you think that the reason why none of those stories are told is because um, white people would would be afraid of the that that blacks might act out if those stories were inside of the books? I you know I don't know if I could sum it up that simply. I just think that um, it's not convenient to a whole lot of people that that story be told. Okay, my last question Because for it you, also, um, like, brings up the question of reparations then and so on, which people are pretty, pretty much do not want to talk about uh, and so on. I think that's part of the reason, and again, it's partly because of the children. This stuff is not stuff you want your kids to know. So suddenly there's, in history books for the schools, we have slavery, and then we have the Civil War, and we fixed it. Okay, that's it. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, um, to, um, they, today you have the 13th Amendment, which um, it's, um, offers freedom to black people unless um, they committed a crime. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak about the modern-day slavery system, the prison industrial system? Do you have any yeah. knowledge of that? Our book closes with uh, the 13th Amendment. That 13th Amendment, uh, whether it's a loophole or an ambiguity, is uh, still being debated. It, uh, let, uh, interestingly, the language seems to derive from Thomas Jefferson. Um, in terms of modern-day slavery, Slavery is definitely going on in all kinds of ways, all kinds of places. Um, however, there's not anything today like what existed in the 19th century when the economy was dependent on the production of shadow laborers by female reproduction workers who could be forcibly impregnated for that purpose with their sexual violation approved by law, the children sold on the open market, and constituting not only the backbone but the entirety of the economy. Uh, that's just nothing like that exists right now. Um, that's, I, I think, I mean, we all know about the prison industrial complex. We all know about convict labor. We all know about sex slavery. Um, there's, we all know about what happens to immigrants, what happens to farm workers. Uh, but there are many, many 
kind of scholars speak today of slaveries because slavery isn't one size fits all. It's an inhumane business wherever and however it exists, but it has a lot of different modalities and a lot of different behaviors. I appreciate that, uh, Thomas, in New York. Uh, I want to try and see. Yes, thank you, sir. See if we can get to as many of our callers as can. Uh, listeners, if you could just get your question. Uh, we don't have time for speechifying, so just get your question in. Uh, I think this is our caller in Canada, uh, male caller in Canada. Did you have a question for these sublets? Uh, your line should be open. Okay, I have three questions. Hello? Yes, sir. Yeah. Hello? Yes, sir. Oh, you can hear yeah. Okay, I have three questions. Um, first question do you think it is possible in this system of white supremacy, because I didn't see the beginning, but I'm assuming you guys agree there's a system of white supremacy? Mm-hmm. That is correct. Okay. So in this system, do you believe it's possible for any white person to be completely not racist or non-racist? Why or why not? That was Johnson's going, Uh, All you can do is search your own soul every day. All you can do is ask yourself, try to become conscious. I will say that in the, uh, I'm not going to answer that question uh, flat out, but what we have learned in the five years of working on this book is that, number one, no matter how bad you thought slavery was, it was even worse. It's so slavery of the antebellum period was so bad, so bad, that uh, every time you think you understand how bad it was, you find out that it was even worse. That's one thing. And this is kind of a counterpart to that. Uh, Constance said to me at some point, she said, I've never been so conscious of white privilege. I don't know if that's as a result of working on the book or whether it's just the way that society itself seems to be accelerating as the um, as the, the dialogue in our society gets more and more violent. I don't know. Um, I'd like to think that uh, it is possible to transcend racism in one's own being. Okay. Um, for my next question... Um, Regarding racial misconjugation, how you guys discussed it, and I believe it was, I can't remember which one of you said, but, you know, people just don't, don't just fall in love. How do you think, in, in that context, like, how does the, I guess, the interracial activities around sexual, that were sexual, how does that relate to how we should discuss interracial relationships between blacks and whites today? Well, I mean, the first starting by understanding that race is a cultural construct. The American Anthropological Society uh, refuses to acknowledge that race is a biological reality. Uh, There's simply no basis for saying that races exist from on a biological level. The differences in phenotype that exist are the the the, the skin color, hair, these are fairly minor differences. 
in terms of the functioning of the complex human organism. Very minor differences. So race serves no mean. The term race serves no meaningful biological purpose. It's a cultural construction, and you try to build. I think uh, in reaching across that. Uh, in the context of a highly racist society, it's, um, it's, you try to create, I don't know, I mean, I feel like the best way to deal with that is to try to build a space where the reality of human contact outweighs the the notion of race that's pretty corny, uh, but in one's interpersonal activities, one has to try to to do that somehow. Uh, but that's you're always aware that the society is forcing these constructions on you. It's 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 a hellish situation that we've been put into, thrust into as a result of our history. On the other hand, I think people should be able to fall in love with whomever they want, and it's their business and nobody else's. And people do fall in love. They really do. And the more people that fall in love, the better. Um, I don't, I'm not quite sure that was relevant to what I asked. I mean, how... You brought, up the word, you brought up the word love. That was... Let me restate my question. How relevant is slavery to the history of slavery? How relevant is it to interracial relationships today between blacks and whites, considering this system still exists, the system of white supremacy? That's what Race, well, I'm not going to speak specifically on the question of, quote, interracial relationships, close quote, because I, you know, I don't have a, a, a basis to do that. Uh, but in terms of the basic sense of, how to put this? I'm not sure where you're trying to go with this, Ned, actually, yeah, this either. Because I'm not really sure about this question, either. Um, because we are living in a different kind of culture to a certain degree now than we certainly were in the 19th century. And though many trends have, unfortunately, to put it mildly, continued into our social situations now, and again, it depends on where you live, too. See, where I live, there's a whole lot of things going on that maybe you would not, a person would not see if they went back to where I grew up. And uh, interracial, inter if we want to use that word, Those guys are normal, pretty much where we are now. And in, in, but that depends on, again, where you live, where one lives, and where I live, that is the way it is. As so well as the can you make a comparison and contrast yeah, there? As well as the sectors of society we move in and all the rest of it. So I'm not sure I even have a basis to answer that question. But what I was trying to get to, what I was groping at before, is that the, the part of your question, how relevant is slavery? It is relevant. Slavery is totally relevant because, first of all, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, I mean, 
it seems like this impossibly distant past at some times, but at other times, it's uh, the other caller asked about slavery that is still going on. This is a, everybody, I think, in this society is aware that somehow slavery in some sense still goes on. Uh, slavery is something that is with us in this country all the time. It is part of everything we do. It is part of all our relationships. It's the sum total of what is, it's part of what has made this country what it is. So we have to, we have to try to understand what happened so that we can transcend it, hopefully. Okay, that answers my question. Okay, thank you. I'm happy to oblige. Right on. Uh, let's see. The the person that uh, this is our caller in Michigan. Caller in Michigan, did you have a question for the sublets? You should be with us. Have you heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Hello. Hi. Hi. Good evening. Uh, thanks for taking my call, Gus. And um, <clears throat> I have a question. Just a couple questions for both of the um, the guests. Um, do you consider yourself a racist? No. No. And why? I know better. Yeah. I, I think that's a good answer. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Okay. Um, my next question is, who do you think is most confused about racism? Um white people or non-white people and why? And this is for both of you to answer. I'm, I'm sorry, the, the question again? I didn't get it. Who do, you, who do you believe is most confused about racism, white people or non-white people? Ooh, I think everybody's confused. I mean, you know, it puts, this stuff puts snakes in your head. Uh, and we all got to deal with the snakes one way or another. I have anecdotally, it seems to me like the African Americans I know have a better handle on what it is in dealing with it than the uh, so-called white people that I know. But there are many exceptions to this. Um, so it's, it's not super easy to generalize. I think okay. white, uh, a lot of white people tend to get very defensive be, if, if even the word comes up in conversation, feeling that we're talking about the Ku Klux Klan. And that is where I think the greatest confusion among the largest number of people who are identified as white, this is where their confusion lies. They think that racism is only in these kinds of very specific, violent acts. That's a culmination of those kind of violent acts are a culmination of many other much smaller accumulative attitudes and treatments and actions. And this is where I think white people get very confused. And I don't think African Americans are in the least bit confused by this. Okay, and my last question is, do you um, have a religious belief? Are you Christian, or do you have a religious belief? Uh, I spend a great deal of time in Cuba. I'm known as a Cuba specialist, and uh, although I don't generally talk about personal things in public, I uh, 
I am a, I practice what is called the regular Ocha or Santeria or Lukumi. Um, my Santo is Ochun. Um, and so I am, uh, I am affiliated with that practice, which is the Yoruba religion as practiced in Cuba. Uh, I do not consider myself a Christian. Um, and, uh, nor any of the other religions of the book. I was brought up in a very religious household, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I am not a member of that church anymore, and I, too, tend to follow the spiritual path of Santeria. Okay, thanks for um, taking my call, Gus, and uh, Thank thanks you. for coming on the show to the uh, guests. I'll mute myself. For sure, Thank you. for sure. The caller at 4231... Four two three one. Did you have a question for the sublets? Uh, you should be with us. Yes, yes. <clears throat> Greetings to everyone and peace to everyone on the line. Greetings. Um, my question, one of my questions is, what is your nationality? And um, you can answer that individually, if you could. Our nationality? Yeah. You mean what's on our passport? Yeah, United States every- of America. <laughs> Huh? Yep. United States of America. Um, like a form, if you had to call it like a formal nationality, what what formal nationality would you consider you you are yourself? United States of America. That's that, that that's not a nationality. I mean, can you be more um, like American? American. Um, United States of America is a nationality. <laughs> I mean, I actually don't use the word American because uh, the word America refers, in my mind, refers to the entire hemisphere. And so I think that for the United States to speak of itself as America, as if it were all of America, is um, I, I'm not really down with that. So I tend to say okay. North America or United States or something like that. Okay, I can, I can dig that. Um, my next uh, question is, can you or your wife give me or the listeners a good reason why we should separate um, ISIS terrorists from racist white supremacist terrorists? I can't, uh, no. I, I can't, I can't, I can't take that question. I just can't even like, I, I can't even follow that one up. I, uh, that, I'll have to leave that one unanswered. Okay. Do you think segregation is unconstitutional? Do I think? Do we I, think mean, segregation? I mean, I mean, let me rephrase that. Do you think outlawing of segregation is unconstitutional? Since segregation wasn't the problem, it was the fact that they didn't want to really do separate but equal. That's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I I think segregation is. Earlier, we were talking about how you don't how racism and white supremacy are the same thing. For me segregation, which was the term that was used when I was a boy in the South, um, they, because they, that was a nicer word than just calling it white supremacy. Um, and, you know, as to, as to what is and isn't constitutional, I'm not the guy to ask, but it does seem to me like we ought to be able to end segregation uh, by race. It does seem to me like we ought to be able to have a fair society and that the Constitution ought to be adequate to serve those ends. We really ought to be able to make a fair society. 
I don't know that we will, but we ought to be able to. That's that's my thoughts. Huh? Right on. I'm assuming. Oh, did you did you have one more question, I sir? Just, yeah, no, I just wanted to make a comment. I guess. Oh, because can you save I, your? I would, can you save your uh, comments? Because we have other people that you know want to make sure they get their question in. Uh, caller in Florida, did you have a question for the sublets? Caller in Florida, fire, uh, retired firefighter. Uh, yes. Uh, subject matter is uh, symbolism, and uh, also can be speech. Uh, you're probably going to go to the uh, the mode of I'm not an expert, but uh, you do have an opinion. You do have an opinion, and uh, I would like to uh, know it. You also can choose logic, my to be logical. Uh, my question is, uh, I heard through the discussion uh, about uh, uh, symbolism that uh, is incorrect and should be gotten rid of. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that you're limited to that, but I've heard that during the course of discourse today. Uh, primarily what gets, what gets uh, sub, uh, picked on the most is the uh, quote-unquote Confederate flag and some statues. Uh, but let's expand this, and this is my question. Uh, what, is the, what is your understanding of and or view on from a global aspect? I did think I heard you say that uh, there is such thing as global uh, a global system of racial white supremacy, correct? Uh, that was actually uh, Gus's formulation. Okay, so you don't think racism, white racial white supremacy is global? Right. No, but that, I'm just saying this is that's where the language came from tonight. Yeah, I know that, but I'm asking you. Yes, it's global. Yes, it's global. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, so that is global. Uh, uh, do you uh, limit? I mean, you have you have uh, on a global basis. Uh, we're not talking about well. We have to go uh, uh, beyond what's called the United States. What about the uh, red, white, and blue flag that was uh, pulled out in the big game yesterday? Isn't that equally uh, as, uh, just as much as the Confederate flag or some statues uh, a symbol of racial white supremacy? Um, that's, that's a question. I don't know. I didn't see the case. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you do, I know, you do know they have ball games in the yeah, party. No, no. Yeah. You do know they raise flags and whatnot and sing, and sing uh, songs uh, uh, regarding to the flag and or someplace called the United States of America. Uh, you don't have to see a ball game or know anything about it to know that, they, that that's something that's common, correct? Well, that's part of the ritual for sure. I also think a lot about the fact that uh, the battle flag of Northern Virginia is very popular in a lot of quarters in Europe and England. And, well, hold, uh, hold, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we go to the Virginia flag, I asked you about the flag that was pulled out in the big game yesterday. And it happens in all, all ball games. I think what you're that flag is in the... Is that flag is equally as uh, my question is: Is that flag is equally as, from a symbolic standpoint, a representation of the system of racism and white supremacy? 
I do not think it is. Um, it's a political statement. I do not think it is, and it certainly didn't. It certainly wasn't in 1865. Um, that's for sure, because the uh, that that stars and bars, that Confederate flag was about a society that was nothing but slavery. The Confederate flag was about a slave society that was only a slave society that had slavery at its very cornerstone. And while there may be a great deal of racism encoded in the patriotic cant of the United States of America, and while the national anthem was written by a white supremacist, and all of that is true, it's not the same proposition as the Confederate flag. That would be my answer, since you asked my opinion. Okay. Uh, on a global basis, uh, there were many forms of, of uh, slavery that took place. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Non-white people, uh, unfortunately, have had a practice of picking something. If, for instance, in Africa, they were picking coal, and, and from my understanding, they're still picking shiny rocks that are called diamonds and uh, gold. Uh, in Vietnam, uh, the white people who identified themselves as French had non-white people picking something, uh, probably with rubber, uh, not too far from where I'm sitting at right now, uh, 90 miles to be exact, uh, uh, the place called Cuba, White people had non-white people picking something called sugarcane. So they were picking something uh, 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 at different points of time. The only reason why it stopped, the only reason why it stopped is because from that standpoint, it, it became use, uh, not useful to, to uh, mistreat people in that way. Uh, uh, so could you give me, uh, give me your comments on, on what I just said? Well, there's been a lot of work done on whether or not slavery was a profitable economic system or not. And the ultimate conclusion, the, uh, there were pro-slavery historians, basically, who tried to say, oh, no, slavery was ultimately not profitable, would have died out. Bullshit. Slavery is profitable. Appropriating somebody else's labor is profitable. It goes on uh Wherever there's hard work to be done, there's a tendency towards slavery. Uh, you, we might uh, look at one of the worst human abuses today um, in eastern Congo, where coltan is being uh, taken out for uh, pretty much everybody's cell phones. You know, if you've got a cell phone, you've got a little piece of earth that was dug up out of Congo um, by a uh, by a person who may have been a basically a slave, um, it's it does go on. Right, and, and what, I, what I'm identifying and what I started in on was symbol. Now, uh, as far as uh, I think I said something about speech, also in speech and talking about language, um, uh, along with the symbolism, also the language. I noticed when I observe around the world that the primary language that non-white people speak is language that was deep into them by white people, French, Spanish, yes, colonial languages, and, yes. or Latin, English, 
uh, that sort of thing. So, and there are words, and we we spoke about some of these words yesterday. Uh, no, was it yesterday or before yesterday? I can't remember exactly one. Gus got a better memory than me. Uh, but uh, uh, language that is utterly evil and still exists, uh, such as uh, manifested destiny, uh, gentrification. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you expound on 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 speech also, as far as uh, from the standpoint as a being utilized as a weapon against non-white people, and turning it, it kind of like uh, uh, keeps these keeps these strategy of slavery uh, alive and well today. I didn't. Those some of your call cut out. Can you ask me that question again in a more concise uh, way? Was, I, I moved. I moved to the second part of my question, which was speech, and in turn with speech. Uh, in different languages, all of them have been uh, forced on non-white people, who are the who are the overwhelming majority of people on the planet. But everywhere, they have been forced to speak the language of the white supremacists, and in turn, within that speech, there are uh, there are certain words that have been used as weapons. And I gave examples, gentrification, zoning, uh, manifested destiny. Uh, so I would like for you to expound on that aspect of, of white supremacy and how that has been effective against non-white people. Well, yeah, the, the colonial languages, uh, which are spoken all across Africa, uh, I went to Angola in 2012, and it's not really convenient for the Angolan govern, government that the, that the, uh, the, the, uh, the Kimbundu and the Congo areas speak their own national languages. It's more convenient for the Angolan government that they all speak Portuguese. Uh, this is there seems to be uh, this kind of process going on all over. Uh, the colonial project of Spain was remarkably effective from 1492 on in implanting the language of the colonizer all over the hemisphere, which is also part of the strong cultural unity that Latin America has today. Um, in terms of the words, you know, words being used as um, in terms like manifest destiny, uh, a particularly racist term. Uh, there's no shortage of those terms everywhere, you know, everywhere you turn, whether in American history or elsewhere. But the, uh, sorry, I uh, just dropped something. Um, but the uh, the terms that are given down are also coming back from the street repurposed. And that's what, it's one of the things popular music does, um, is it creates a dialogue in which that is a vehicle at times for transmission of new ways to use words, new senses to use words. You see this really big time in hip-hop, I think, where the street comes back with new uses for old words. Uh, that's been pretty much the, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a, a great deal of cultural work 
that's been done on that throughout the last uh, you know century, basically in the U.S. I don't know. That's uh, that's my last quick question. You just you just you just you just, uh, you just encouraged me to ask this last quick question. Okay. So therefore, based on your your spill on 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 language uh, 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 by youth, do you think it's useful for non-white black people to uh, popularize the word nigger amongst themselves? Where do you where do you see there's of any constructive value in using that that word? I don't see any constructive value in black people using that word. Um, on the other hand, I'm not the one who's making, you know, nobody's asking me whether they should say it or not, you know. Um, but I don't see any constructive value in it. Um, but no, I don't see any constructive value in it. Okay, thank you, Beth. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Right on. The uh, person that dialed in, D.C. area yeah. caller, did you have a question for it, the sublets? You should okay. be with us. Hey, 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 Gus. Gus, are you there? Yes, sir. Yeah, Gus. Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yeah, we're gonna have to. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna have to cut it off after another call, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I had, I did want to ask you about uh, your your thoughts on Ray Nagin. Um, the the documentary that I mentioned with Spike Lee, I think you mentioned that you think Ray Nagin is going to go down as one mm-hmm. of the worst mayors in the history of this area of the world. Uh, we spent a lot of time uh, kind of researching what happened uh, before Hurricane Katrina, afterwards, uh, Ray Nagin, him now being uh, incarcerated. Uh, and I wanted to ask uh, Gary Rivlin, he was a guest on our program. He wrote the book uh, Katrina After the Flood, mm-hmm. uh, where he gives a lot of detailed information uh, that Ray Nagin uh, would not have been mayor. Uh, he's the guest on that program as well. Uh, we said Ray Nagin would not have been mayor if it had not been for very powerful whites in New Orleans uh, who backed him financially, uh, that he was really one of the, the lowest rated candidates uh, when he first came to office, uh, when he was first time elected for his first term. And I wanted to ask uh, if, if, and I'm not even saying that I think he did a great job, but what I am saying is him being mayor, he would not have been there at all if it was not for very powerful white people in New Orleans. And consequently, based on that being true, everything that happened uh, for his two terms in mayor, whether he did a good job, whether he is the worst mayor ever, that would still be for the white people who are responsible for him being in power. And I wanted to, to get your response to see if you think that's accurate. I think that... Uh Ray Nagin was largely, as you describe him, when he came into office, um, he was a uh, he was a cable TV exec with no political experience, and uh, he wasn't a good mayor, uh, to put it mildly. The uh, now he had to deal with a situation that nobody else has had to deal with. Um, I mean, I'll give him that. Um, I mean, I can't imagine being in those shoes. But unfortunately, he was the wrong man to be in those shoes. And it didn't work out very well for New Orleans, uh, which um, has a smaller black population than it used to. Right. That's all true. But my question all of that, him having no political experience. This is yeah. some guy that was working for Cox Cable uh, and right. you know his inabilities, yeah. uh, his ineffectiveness uh, as a two-term mayor in New Orleans had uh, 
really devastating consequences for the black citizens uh, in yes, New Orleans before New, uh, Katrina afterwards. What I'm saying is all of that, the people that are most to blame for that are not Ray mm-hmm. Nagy. And the people most to blame for that would be individuals like Ashton Phelps, Jimmy Reese, Ron Foreman, Boise Bollinger. These are white men who financed him, who went and selected him to say, yes, we want you to run and be mayor. And mm-hmm. even uh, Gary Rivlin, he goes a step further to say that these folks deliberately picked this non-white black male to be the front person, if you will, in being mayor of New Orleans, while they, people that these white people at the Boston Club, are the ones that are pulling the strings and really in charge in New Orleans. And I just wanted to get your mm-hmm. response. Do you think that's accurate? Do you think that's an accurate assessment? I don't know enough about all those individual guys you named to be able to sign off on it. But, you know, I think I said it. Uh, Ray Nagan was obviously put into place. I mean, there was not a spontaneous um, cry by the people of New Orleans to have Ray Nagan become their mayor. He was put into place. He was a terrible mayor. Um, he's, you know, and uh, black people in New Orleans suffered under him. And I don't really understand why he ran for a second term. Uh, that was really, the second term was, uh, was really bad. Mm. Um, uh, Ned and Constance. Sublet, uh, the book again, The American Slave Coast, a lot of uh, really fascinating information learned, a ton, kind of a comprehensive uh, history uh, of the slave breeding industry in the U.S. Uh, Enjoyed having you all on the program. Great work. Uh, We'll keep an eye out for any future works uh, that you all are doing, particularly if they're related to racism. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Monday evening. Thank you so much, and thanks to all the callers. Um, that was really a, that, that was really a great experience. Thank you. Yes, sir. Ned said it first, but I absolutely agree. Thank you. Bye. For Good. sure. For sure. Have a great evening. Good night. Mm-hmm. Context of white supremacy. Ned Constance Sublet. Uh, Authors, again, the American Slave Coast uh, analysis of slavery as a breeding industry uh, in the U.S. I remember, I think, years before I even knew about this book. This book just came out right at the end of 2015. But uh, I saw Ned Sublet in uh, Spike Lee's documentary. And uh, I had seen the documentary way back when it first came out. But then after this summer, we were doing a lot more time uh, researching uh, Ray Nagin and and all of the, the things that went down in uh, New Orleans. I wanted to uh, to ask that question when I saw that. I was like, man, I would like to ask him because I've I've heard other folks when they critique Ray Nagin. Uh, that's my response consistently, and I would encourage any listeners. Uh, you can go back and check out some of our coverage of Hurricane Katrina that we did, uh, not just this past summer because it went on for a while, but all the guests that we had on, different folks. Uh, Arnitra Barber, uh, Barber, excuse me, uh, from the New Orleans Tribune and uh, Gary Rivlin, as I said, June Cross, uh, tons of folks that we had uh, to talk about Hurricane Katrina. My analysis consistently has been uh, I'm not saying that Ray Nagin was a great mayor. I'm not saying that at all. And I've said consistently that I, I did not agree with uh, a lot of the things that he's done and said. And, and I just have a problem with people not being honest when they come out to speak about things. But at the end of the day, Ray Nagin would not have been in office if it were not for very powerful white people. And some of the names that I just gave you, uh, these folks admitted, yes, we back, we bankrolled him. We financed him. 
We were the ones who put up the money who made it possible for him to become uh, mayor in the first place. And I take the position that anything that happened uh, during his tenure, uh, his two terms uh, as mayor uh, in New Orleans, those white people are most to blame uh, them going out and picking someone that they knew had no experience uh, to be a mayor of a major city and, and particularly being in a, in a position where they could have all sorts of problems uh, as a result of hurricanes and what have you. Uh, all of this would be resting on their shoulders, these white people. Uh, at any rate, um, if folks have any uh, comments they want to get in, I know uh, everybody did not get an opportunity to uh, ask their question, um, you know, Happens sometimes, uh, so I do encourage folks to go ahead and call in late. I say that consistently to not lollygag and wait till the last minute. If you do have uh, a question that you want to ask, go ahead and get your hand up uh, immediately if you have something that you uh, want to get in. Uh, I think also it would be good if all of us, if we could work on being uh, efficient uh, with our question. That's why I try to say consistently no speechifying so that we're not doing a lot of making statements and comments where you can just ask your question, ask your question ask your question. I think it would be much better, uh, myself included, being uh, really good at that, being efficient. Uh, and, and one of the other benefits of that in talking to racist white supremacists, racist suspects, white people, uh, I think it can be helpful uh, if you can be more efficient with your questions. Sometimes you can give them uh, less leeway in terms of how they answer to either not answer your question or to deviate, to just pick out like a, a part of your statement or something else to pick out a part of that and deviate to something where they're not even, you know, answering uh, the real core of, of what you asked. So that's something that I try to think about in terms of really all of us should be thinking about in terms of just being uh, as efficient as we possibly can uh, with our questions. Uh, that being said, um, I'll get in, in one comment and then I'll, I'll check in with the folks who dialed in if you didn't get an opportunity to uh, ask a question uh, or I guess two quick comments. Number one, um, I did ask them about their book because it does not have any information about uh, black males that were enslaved, them being sexually uh, victimized. And I've said that that's a pattern. I brought that up consistently when we've read uh, The Half Has Never Been Told, Edward Baptist and other books uh, that I've seen where that just doesn't get talked about or people say that it didn't happen or there's no evidence. Uh, I, I can only conclude, as I told him, me being a black person, uh, I have not read nearly as much material as they have and going through all these archives and getting to go back and read uh, primary sources and diaries and newspaper articles and what have you uh, from, you know, 200, 300 years ago to get to see all of the, the primary documentation. Uh, I know material that there's documentation of black males that were uh, sexually exploited raped uh, during enslavement and even, you know, continuing 2016, uh, I just, uh, to me, it is extremely suspect uh, that there are so many uh, scholars, authors, white people and non-white people who, you know, submit that they don't, they don't know about this or, or they're not aware of this or they don't think this has happened. It is extremely uh, suspicious to me. I suspect that this could be another aspect of how white people practice racism, white supremacy by deliberately omitting a major facet uh, of how white people victimized uh, males in the same manner that they victimized black females. And even that doesn't get enough uh, attention, in my opinion, in terms of really making it clear that this was an integral aspect. I think the term they use in the book, an intrinsic aspect of how the slave system operated in this area of the world, the sexual exploitation of black people, that this was 
everybody all the time, males, females, children. That's the way that it should be taught. That's the way that we should think about it uh, at all times. Uh, if folks want to run down to some of the books that do cover uh, how males were victimized in this same manner, uh, I can do that. I've emailed it out to people before and given some of the book titles and authors. Uh, I have to thank Dr. Tommy Curry because I think he's uh, at least one person that I can think of that does uh, bring that up regularly. He's brought it up over the years on the program. And uh, he, in fact, he's the one that gave me some of the sources uh, that I listed uh, off Thomas Foster. I know he uh, mentions that article that he wrote uh, all the time. Uh, and he's a white person, Thomas Foster up at DePaul. I'm going to see if we can get him on the program. Uh, the other comment uh, that was fascinating when we were, when we did the program yesterday, and I, we were talking about the Super Bowl, and I said at the end of the game uh, that someone in the crowd had a sign. Uh, they were rooting for the Broncos and happy that they won. And they had a sign, and it said, The Sheriff's Best Rodeo. And that is uh, white male Peyton Manning. That's his nickname. Uh, and even no coincidences, Peyton Manning was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. But that nickname, the sheriff's best rodeo, and I talked about it yesterday, uh, the connotations that came to mind for me relating to the ISIS papers, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's analysis of the symbolism uh, of white people bullfighting and same thing, in my opinion, the rodeo going out and this uh, black bull or some dark uh, animal that we got to subdue it. Uh, we got to dominate and conquer it uh, to prove uh, our virility, our manhood, our white manhood. Uh, it really stood out to me when I got to the end of the American Slave Coast, the sublet's book. I was going to ask them if we had enough time at the end. I get to the last chapter of their book. Right. <laughs> and uh, I'm not even thinking that I'm going to ask them about that. because you know, What does that have to do with their book? So the last chapter uh, in the American Slave Coast, or it's not even the last chapter, really. It's just kind of the, the final summation of what they have to say. Uh, it has a picture of Louisiana State Penitentiary, right? Uh, folks, Angola, we talked about Hurricane Katrina, talked about that uh, huge, huge plantation for confining mostly dark people in Louisiana. And it has a sign up, right? So you see this black and white photograph, uh, and it has a sign up It says, Angola Prison Rodeo, April 26th and 27th. Now, this is from uh, March of 2014 when they took this photograph. They have, I think it's a pretty well-known event, this rodeo that takes place uh, in Angola where they take uh, enslaved, mostly enslaved black people, they bring them out for entertainment uh, to have this, this rodeo. Even, there's a documentary film where they show this and, and they ask some of the, the inmates, you know, why are you doing this it's kind of dangerous and blah, blah, blah. And they talk about all this. So that was when I'm like, wow, that is so fascinating. She just had that sign up at the Super Bowl yesterday, Sheriff's Best Rodeo. So I continue reading the, the final summation of the text. And it says, today, people are no longer sold like livestock in the public market, but the racism slavery engendered has been resilient, having become a seemingly systematic disfigurement of American society. The post-emancipation history is a gloomy one. The only group that was brought to America against their will is still on the bottom. After the brief period of reconstruction that saw much progress, including the establishment of black colleges, the freedmen were abandoned by the North to the mercy of Southern sheriffs. And I said, wow. <laughs> right, and this is like one page away from where the photo of Louisiana State Penitentiary, Angola Prison Rodeo. And then the more that I thought about it, uh, when I think of Angola, I think of the Angola Three. 
imprisoned black males who were members of the Black Panther Party. Uh, and I was going to ask them, like, wow, do you see any any symbolism? Uh, just, you know, what you have kind of at the, the conclusion of your book with Peyton Manning, this white man, triumphant white man winning the Super Bowl, nicknamed the sheriff, vanquishing the Panthers, Black Panther, if you will, Cam Newton, and all of this taking place in uh, the Bay Area, the 50-year uh, anniversary of the Black Panther Party. I was going to see if they had any uh, thoughts on that at the end. But uh, even without their thoughts, it, it, to me, it was astounding. Maybe to people uh, that are listening, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. But that, to me, was astounding to have the rodeo and then black people being left to the sheriff, racist sheriffs in Louisiana. Uh, I can... Just quick uh, immediate thoughts for me. Sometimes I need I need to go back and re-listen to the program. It's difficult to process everything if you're hosting the program and, you know, kind of make sure the program is operating correctly and getting callers and and all of that. Also, and just the fact this is a massive book, massive. Uh, sometimes we have white people on the program. Uh, if you compare this like to Dorothy Bullitt, sometimes we have white people on the program and I'll ask them uh, more questions about them as a white person and their role in racism, white supremacy, sometimes if a white person, I'll just stick to the book if I think the book has a lot of constructive information that I want to get out. And I can even get to uh, some of the questions that I would ask pertaining to racism, white supremacy, just picking through their material uh, just depends on the constructive value uh, of the book. Even though I consistently say, uh, and I will say again, uh, do not purchase texts that white authors have written. I wouldn't care how constructive it is. Uh, I do not think that white people should uh, benefit financially uh, from sharing constructive information on racism. I think that that should be something that's just given, uh, at minimum, given to black people. You know, if other white people want to buy it, great. But black people should not be purchasing uh, books by whites, uh, regardless of the constructive value of the text. Uh, I didn't purchase the book, but I have it, uh, and I read the whole thing. It is very constructive. Um, that is divorced from, you know, their uh, conduct on the program today. But the book is very constructive. And I would even underline very. It is. I, I have a short list of texts uh, that whites have written that I would say, yeah, I think this is a construct. Gary Rivlin uh, would be on that list. But in terms of books that whites have written that I think are constructive, Gary Rivlin, uh, Katrina After the Flood constructive, accurate information, uh, being honest about the system of white supremacy, absolute, where you can learn a lot about how the system works. Absolutely. Gary Riblin after the flood, this one would qualify. Uh, Joe Fagan, uh, two-faced, or excuse me, yeah, two-faced racism, that would qualify. There are a few others, but this one, absolutely. And I would even say I think this one is more constructive uh, than the half has never been told. Uh, I think that book, I think we've pointed out a lot of the things that our problems, even though that book also has a lot of great information, but wow, uh, it's it's comprehensive. It has a lot of primary sources, a lot of other books uh, that you can check out uh, for the most part using correct terms. They use the term white supremacy uh, repeatedly uh, in the book. They classify this as rape uh, repeatedly. They set that out, you know, in very explicit, unambiguous terms uh, kind of at the beginning of the book. So I would definitely recommend reading it. Uh, but it's, it's massive. It's absolutely massive uh, in terms of the scope. It's almost a thousand pages. So it's it's a lot of material uh, to cover. Uh, could have even spent time going through more of that today, but I wanted to stop to get at questions. Uh, but just even some of the responses that I'm, I'm reprocessing over when I asked about if if the rape of black people is a central aspect of white supremacy culture, white culture, their initial response, they didn't answer the question at all. When I went back and re-asked, they both, yes, no equivocation, no 
buckets of words. Yes. Uh, I thought that was uh, extremely significant. I think some of their non-answers uh, were also very important uh, as well, both the questions that callers asked uh, and some of the res uh, responses that we had uh, in going through the book. But again, even with that, uh, I think a lot of uh, good tidbits uh, in the book, uh, even though I think you would probably get more out of it uh, if you have a better understanding of racism, white supremacy as you read and, and just having a high level suspicion uh, when talking to whites. Uh, with that, uh, I will check to see uh, the folks that did not get an opportunity to ask a question, if they have uh, anything that they uh, would like to share, if anything stood out uh, and, you know, might be uh, we have about 30 minutes left. So I'll check in with them. If anybody else, if they have anything that they want to make sure that they uh, that they get to uh, see the person. Person at three, three, seven, two uh, and. Ross, uh, I don't think either of you got to ask a question. And the person at 5640, uh, you three did not get to ask a question. Did, did you all either, if you want to give the questions you were going to ask or uh, thoughts, observations uh, from what you heard, uh, if you want to share? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Dustin, to all the callers. Yeah, I thought I actually put myself in the queue, but I realized I didn't. So when I didn't get the opportunity, I figured, you know, see, well, it seems to be it seems to be abrupt. I don't know if you um was planning to stay on longer, if that was actually the time he told you he was going to leave. But um, <clears throat> excuse me, there was something that he did very early in the program when you were discussing with him um the whole idea of black people, black females being raped, and he laughed, and it was offensive to me. Um, to me, it was disrespectful to us as black people who are descendants of these people who were forcibly raped. And it just seemed like a very blatant act of white supremacy. Um, and I didn't, I, and he laughed at another portion, but when he first, the very first time he laughed was very early in the program. And you, you were both discussing the whole idea of, um, black females, uh, being, uh, used sexually in a forcible manner and being raped and terrorized. And he actually laughed and it was, um, just disconcerting when he did that. The questions I wanted to ask was, um, I was gonna, because his wife had brought up, um, the whole idea of reparations. So I was going to ask them if they, if they think black people should receive reparations. And I was going to ask them in their opinion, what should that look like? Um, that was one thing I was going to ask. The other thing I was going to ask was, um, would they say that racism was Europe's most valuable export? That's something that I wrote in the essay that I wrote on white supremacy. I, I think that's the most valuable thing to ever come out of Europe is racism, white supremacy, because it is a global system and because they've basically uh, maintained domination in all 10 areas of people activity and have done so for at, at least in the United States for half, half a century. So I was going to ask him that. And then um, I wanted to ask him as well, had he gotten any negative responses from white people in regards to the information that he was revealing due to the, um, the sensitive nature. And they kept speaking about the fact that this was such horrible stuff that it, you know, it's very disconcerting, especially to white people to even have to discuss this stuff. And, um, another thing I found very fascinating and it's something that I've, I've seen with a couple of white people over, uh, my lifetime is that when you have, when he discussed the idea that he was initiated into Lukumi or um, Santeria, uh, which is the Western equivalent in, uh, well, in Cuba of the Yoruba tradition where they sympathize the Catholic saints to the African 
uh, deities, they call them Orisha. Um, I just found it very fascinating because I find that so-called conscious white people who don't believe they're racist um, tend to abandon the white God to worship black gods. And I find that very fascinating because it seems to me as they study black people more in depth, they start to get an understanding of number one, the fact that white people always worship black people from the very beginning and that through white supremacy, they have reversed the whole trend, but somewhere in there, they understand the power of those deities. So they want to reclaim that power for themselves. And they, they basically, again, like I said it on the last show, they're vampires. They, they blood suck our culture and they, they take it from us and they teach us to hate ourselves so much. We run from those things yet in reality, they're basically trying to leech that power as well and utilize it to further white supremacy. Um, I remember a Yoruba priest saying that uh, he was told in a reading by the ancestors that until a minimum of 1 million black Americans start picking up African traditional religion that the ancestors were not going to respond to us the way that we want them to respond. And he said he had done this reading with a book he wrote actually about uh, the whole concept of ancestors that I found fascinating. And he actually talks about it in that book. I'll see if I can get the title. Um, but yeah, I just found that fascinating. The fact that he is an initiate, he says, and his wife also practices that tradition. And I just find that these white people who uh, claim to be conscious, as he put it on the show, um, and, and wake up to the reality of racism, white supremacy, as they claim, um, they tend to basically abandon white Jesus and they want to start worshiping the more ancient and original African deities. So I thank you very much. And I'll meet my line there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the laughter, I did make note of that as well. I thought that was uh, significant. We've talked about that uh, over the years now uh, on the program, some of the uh, the significance uh, of white guests when they come on and laugh at, at some of those moments. But I, I thought that was key. And I think he even had a moment of self being self-aware where he commented on it and saying that, uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm snickering, but it's it's not funny at all. I mean, yeah, it's a, a, a industry of raping uh, and calculated, planned, necessary uh, rape. That would be another thing, too, I'd point out in the book. In my view, that should be uh, stated consistently, uh, like not deviating from that at all. Like I understand them using the term breed because that's the way that they that's the terminology that was used at the time. But in my view, that's the way it should be stipulated, like consistently, like necessary, required rape of black people and just being consistent about it so that we're all. No ambiguity. That's what it is. That's how we're going to make our money. Continued rape every day, every day. Uh, other folks that dialed in who did not get to uh, get their question in, uh, caller in D.C. Um, see, anybody else that did not get their get to get their question in? Did you have a commentary you wanted to to add observation or if you want to share your question? Five six four zero. Did you did you not have uh, anything you wanted to add? Or all right, maybe they're just listening in. I, I went to I think I went to their line right when uh, they were saying that they uh, were going to take like one more question and then they were uh, going to exit. Uh, at any rate, um, I will. This is really more just about self preservation for myself uh, because I have. As I said, this is like a, a massive book. It's close to a thousand pages. So that is what I've been doing uh, when we were not on the air or preparing for other programs. 
uh, over the last few days. I think we've been on uh, every day since Friday uh, or so, I believe. Uh, but that's what I've been doing uh, is, is reading this book and highlighting. Uh, it is, wow, uh, it is pretty comprehensive. Uh, at any rate, um, do like five minutes if, if folks have anything quick that they uh, wanted to get in. Uh, your line should be open. Um, Gus. Yes, sir. There was, you were talking re recently about, um, even today on the show, I believe you brought it up, the fact that white people were in constant fear of black people uh, revolting and basically um, fighting back against a system of racism and white supremacy. And this particular book, to me, like, the, the fact that we can read these books as a people, those of, those of us black people who are exposed to these books, because I'm sure there's quite, quite a few of us who aren't exposed to these books or don't read and watch more television than read. But the more we're exposed to this information, it's just like this type of stuff should really have an immediate effect on us shifting our consciousness in the direction to, uh, to combat this system. And when you juxtapose what they're speaking about, which is, you know, slavery and, and, and just that intense, uh, overt white supremacy, and then we look at the overt and covert white supremacy we're dealing with today, there's not much difference, minus the fact that we're just not all walking around in chains working on the farm. But basically, it's, 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 it hasn't changed. And I think if, if enough of us can come into contact with this information and Mr. Neely Fuller's material and Dr. Welsing and Dr. Marimba Ani and all of these scholars that have a true understanding of what these beings are really about, um, it should really have an, a, a damn near immediate transformative effect on our consciousness and how we deal with them on a daily basis until we're able to make a decisive move towards destroying the system. And it's just shocking to me, like, the more that I find out that there's still so many of us that have to go through such deep convincing because our conditioning is like a 500-year genetic infusion of white supremacist cancer that we have to keep fighting through as a people. But I just think that we should be much more conscious of the, 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 the predators that we live amongst. We deal with every day. We get our paychecks from, you know, do we deal with in the doctor's office? And I'll meet my line there. Thank you so much. Hmm. Uh, I didn't really hear a question, but uh, my, uh, my thought uh, would be number one, I don't think, most non-white people uh, have access to this information. Uh, that's been uh, my experience. I know I wasn't uh, reading this sort of uh, material uh, when I was uh, younger and the black people that I was around for the most part were not reading this material. And in fact, when I had it, uh, they were even surprised. Many of them, not all, but many of them. It's like, you know, what are you reading that for? <laughs> it was the type of uh, response, even when I was uh, in school and, and getting a major uh, in history, double major, but getting a major in history. Uh, the response generally, my observation and response, the observation was uh, most of the people in the classes I was taking were not black people. And when I would talk to other black people, uh, even we weren't even getting uh, this, in my view, more accurate and much more brutal information, just being accurate and honest about uh, what racism is, how it works, what's been done to us, what's being done to us now. Uh, when I would present that, most black people really didn't have uh, much of an interest. So that would be one. I think a lot of us just just don't have uh, this information in terms of there being some sort of uh, immediate uh, change. I'm not really surprised about that because it would be 
uh, immediate change to what exactly? Um, I don't think there are, in comparison to the number of examples that you are going to be bombarded with daily of victims of white supremacy that are confused, that don't have an accurate understanding of racism and what we should be doing, uh, or at least attempting to do, to counter this system, it is like minuscule. It's be, that, that is an understatement to say it's minuscule in terms of modeling. I think people know that uh, being able to see, being able to observe correct behavior uh, or just being able to observe period behavior, whether it's correct or not, that that has a big impact uh, on our thought, speech, action, feelings and conduct. And you're just not going to be, at least I'm not. And I suspect that's the case for most for most people. They're just not exposed uh, to models of constructive behavior and what your change in thought, speech, action would look like. Uh, in addition to that's just not supported, uh, even if you did have like one model, somebody that was around you, that is not going to be supported and reinforced. Uh, I was talking to a victim of racism last week, and I was saying, generally, if that's what you're attempting to do is to change your behavior, your thought, speech uh, and action, it's probably just going to be you in many environments uh, when you are around other non-white people. If you're saying, hey, I'm trying to codify my behavior uh, so that I'm doing things that are working against racism, white supremacy, both in how I respond, think about, interact with whites and how I respond, interact, think, treat non-white people, black people. Uh, it probably will just be you in most of the environments that you're in. And the person I was talking to was saying, yeah, and that can be daunting. So yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's not surprising at all. The, the, the scope of the problem, the magnitude of the problem is gargantuan uh, in terms of, of just what the way that we're being abused, all different areas of people activity and trying to get more of us uh, in terms of understanding this is a problem and getting us motivated to want to do something about it. I think that's another issue as well that a lot of times, uh, I know Josh Wickett has talked about this. Uh, I think even Neely Fuller Jr. Uh, has talked about this. We're saying what people get the information but it, it does not go to, all right, I have this information. I'm going to start applying it. I know Dr. Kanban has talked about this as well, Kamal Kanban, uh, where he said you, you getting the information and actually applying it, those frequently are two different things. Uh, and for a lot of the reasons that I just stated in terms of it, that is, that is just not, not something that is reinforced uh, and might even be by getting more of this information. And you see what happens uh, most of the time to black people who are trying to do something. Most of the time, it does not end well. Uh, we're still in the system of white supremacy, so it might even be most accurate to say every time that that has happened thus far, it has not ended well. Uh, the non-white person, you, the Black Panther Party, I was thinking about that. The Black Panther Party, in my view, that is not a story that ended in success. Uh, that is a story that ended with a whole lot of black people being ambushed, killed, thrown in jail, traumatized. Uh, if you see uh, the documentary film, All Power to the People, uh, they say that, that, that you ended up with a whole lot of people who, uh, black people, uh, who were just, you know, walking wounded, I think was the, the terminology that they used. So, I mean, uh, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming if you see all of it. It's not like you see, wow, success stories. When you read all about these revolts that happened that they suppressed, like, oh, it wasn't just Nat Turner. There were tons of black people who violently resisted, uh, resisted racism, white supremacy. For the most part, they ended up dead. Uh, and not just, you know. A quick death, like agonizing, suffering, being tortured. We're going to punish you uh, for having the audacity to fight back against our system. That tends to be more often than not, that tends to be what happens. So 
I can't say that I'm surprised uh, that more of us don't have a immediate. In, fa- in fact, I would say that might be the quickest way to set yourself up for disappointment uh, is thinking that getting this information is going to bring about a, a quick uh, or immediate change in the thought, speech and action of victims. Uh, it is something that takes uh, some time. It takes some dedication. Uh, all of us, you know, we're still being victimized, even in the process of trying to correct our, our behavior. So uh, I, I don't even that's not even my thought process It's people that have been listening to this program for years and they still have white friends. That is the immense power of racism, white supremacy that, that we are are trying to correct. And it's, I don't say all that to get people in a, in a defeatist mindset and think, oh, man, this is this is really gloomy and this is sad. But I mean, it's it is a gargantuan problem uh, that we are going about trying to correct uh, unless uh, I'm in error uh, in my assessment that that certainly could be. But it is a massive problem uh, that, you know, we're going to have to uh, do as much as we can to con- uh, to correct. I do think that this is uh, eventually going to be replaced with a system of justice. I don't think white people would be uh, investing all the time and energy to disrupt uh, black people, non-white people that attempt to counter racism. I don't think they would be spying on us and doing the Cointel Pro and all that if they really thought the system was going to be here forever. So it's not that, but it is uh, it is a massive problem. I will I'll stop there. Hopefully some of that uh, made sense if it wasn't clear or uh, people uh, didn't understand for like, you know, it's, it's not logical what I said. You can definitely uh, let me know. But that's my assessment uh, based on what you, what you had to share, Roz. It makes perfect sense. I think that's what makes shows like this so vital just to to us trying to, like you said, codify our behavior and just make a change to the system. So this show is vital. I thank you a lot. I mean, you're right. It hasn't been my experience either, but it's just like just flabbergasting. Sometimes you just think about it and it's mind-blowing. That's all. And um, you're right. It goes to show the um the thoroughness of our conditioning. You know, like you said, there's people who still have white friends and they've been listening to the show for years. So that's just one example. It's not to pick on them, but it's just one example of the fact that, you know, it does take a lot, a lot of work. And like you said, we're still getting victimized while working on ourselves at the same time. So it's like a twofold fight every single minute of every single day. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not picking on me. That's why I'm not putting names on it. I'm not trying to uh, certainly to pick on anybody, but I'm, I'm just using that as an illustration. People that have been listening to this program for years and, you know, they have uh, admitted, I'll say it that way, that, yeah, they do uh, still have uh, white friends. And I don't, you know, pick on them and call them names. You know, good Sambo. And what do you I do that? That's they're victims of white supremacy. That is, again, just evidence of the supreme nature uh, of the power imbalance that we have right now. And, you know, hopefully we'll get it corrected. I will take this moment to, again, uh, that those are are the two words that should never be connected. Like it is horrendous every time I even hear it together, white friends. Hopefully uh, we can erode that uh, through this process and and not having white friends, white associates, white people that we hang out with and do not think of as as racist and do not have an appropriate level of suspicion and understanding what it means to be white in their relationship to black people. But, you know, making progress, making progress uh, as we go. I did have that in mind, though, as I as I was processing uh, all of this. Uh, you know, I'm going to make an effort to see if I can uh, do some writing now that I have free time. I can take a day so off from reading. Um, that was my thought process. Uh, I can I can wrap up with that, with with the whole Super Bowl thing. I think Ross sent me a report. Uh, earlier today where other people were talking about some of the symbolism that they saw from uh, the halftime performance with Beyonce and the backup uh, dancers and the uh, ball game being in the Bay Area, uh, California, and this being the 50th anniversary of the 
uh, Black Panther Party, and they were dressed in black, a la the Black Panthers with the berets and uh, the afros, natural hair. Uh, I said I, I thought uh, Beyonce's costume, it looked like she had a bandolier on, which is the uh, kind of the uh, belt with the uh, bullets in it, ammunition in it, that uh, some of the photos that you'll see of uh, Black Panther Party members uh, during the 60s and 70s, they had bandoliers with their shotguns uh, and all of that. My processing of all of that uh, the white sheriff wins again. Uh, that's, that's my assessment. I know some people, they have a very, uh, romanticized notion of the black Panther party and black people with guns and scaring white people. And we'll show you who's boss. That's not my processing, uh, of the black Panther party. Not that I, I have tremendous, uh, regard, uh, for their effort and what they did to work against racism, white supremacy way beyond the guns. I cannot, uh, underline that enough. Alondra Nelson, she's a black scholar. She's been on the program before. She has a new book that just came out about black people tracing their, uh, heritage, uh, that's been disrupted as a result of racism, white supremacy. It just came out like days ago, but one of her previous books, uh, it's about the black Panther party. And she talks about things other than, uh, ammunition and them being armed. That is important. I'm not diminishing it, but just they did a lot of work uh, covering all areas of people activity, feeding black people, getting clothes for black people, getting uh, medical attention for black people. They started an ambulance because, I mean, I would, you could put that down. Gus, that is way more important than having a gun and saying, yeah, we're going to go out and watch the police where you have areas where whites have said, we're not sending an ambulance for you niggers, I don't care what happens. You get hurt, you get injured, you have a heart attack, whatever happens to you, we're not coming. Ain't going to be no ambulance service for you. Huh. For Black Panthers to say, we're going to start an ambulance service to get black people to the hospital. That is astronomical in terms of constructive value. And when she was on the program, we were saying not only is it an act of racism, white supremacy, that whites have conveniently erased all of that. So you don't even think about it. most don't even know about all the other stuff that they were doing. It's just black people with guns and leather jackets and berets, very superficial understanding of, of what this organization was doing and across the country at different chapters. So they're doing different things in different chapters. That being number one, number two being the guns. Yes. That obviously got white people's attention and they changed gun laws pretty quickly. Uh, once black people, Oh, Negroes have guns. We're going to change our gun laws and so now we can arrest them and they won't be able to, to do that sort of thing without it being an unlawful act. The other things that they were doing, the breakfast programs, as I said, getting medical programs for black people, teaching, getting food, getting clothing, all of that stuff. That was huge on J. Edgar Hoover, the sheriff of the FBI at the time. That was huge on their list of why these people, these black people, black males and black females were regarded as the number one threat to whites in this area of the world. So when I process the Black Panther Party, it's black people doing constructive things and white people coming with extreme violence to crush this immediately and not just to to crush it with their killing tons of black people, little Bobby Hutton uh, and imprisoning black people, uh, Geronimo Pratt, who's now an ancestor and hordes of other black people that ended up being incarcerated in jail. Tupac's mother, you just go on and on and on. Asada Shakur, not just that, but we're going to do a fantastic job of erasing even the details of what they did so that most black people within a generation don't even have 
a full knowledge about what this organization was doing. You have tons of black people. Whites have been so successful. They just think the Black Panthers, these were just some, you know, armed Negroes who are running around. They were a gang. I've had black people tell me that, that they just think the Black Panthers, these were gang members who, you know, ignorant hoodlums who picked up guns and, you know, kill crackers. That's their total understanding of the Black Panther Party. That's what I think of, that white people can be that good, that we can crush your effort in very short order. And then within two generations, most black people won't even have an understanding of what you did, what you were trying to do. We're that good. And we get better as we go. We refine as we go along terrorizing black people. That's what I thought of. And I applied that to now the symmetry. It was it was terrifying. If you want to say what's happening now with what they call Black Lives Matter, that this is on parallel, right, with what was happening then, black people getting upset. Same thing, Black Panthers, they were doing a lot of talking about police terrorism against black people and you're shooting and killing us and and all of that. And we're going to, you know, do what we can to try to counter that. The same pattern is that it was terrifying just looking at the symmetry of that to say, wow, this happened 50 years ago. So then we have that now. And just looking at what they did, you end up with Black Panther Party within two years. You get the election of Richard Nixon. You get intensification of drugs in black areas, mass repression. You end up with tons of black people going to jail. That's in the sublets book. Massive black people going to jail. Massive black. This becomes an excuse to go out and kill black people. Oh, the Negroes are rowdy. The niggers are out of control. We have what they call a white backlash. This just becomes justification to go and shoot at black people willy nilly using Black Panther, uh, Black Panther Party offices for target practice. We'll just drive by. This is uh, white race soldiers, enforcement officers. We'll just go by and shoot up Black Panther uh, offices. We'll make up all sorts of justification to lock up black people, spy on them, make it difficult for them to get a job, hounding them. Tupac talked about how this happened to, to his family and his mom. We'll keep an eye on you for the next 20 years, you and your children. That's what I thought of and saying, oh, it looks like that's probably what white people are going to do now. If you want to compare Richard Nixon winning the election 68, could be, according to Dr. Welsing, she thought Donald Trump uh, is going to win the election this year. Uh, just having justification. We're upset with these unruly Negroes and their protests and going out and demonstrating and having these die-ins and everything else. We're tired of that. Now we're bringing in our repression. That's what I thought of the sheriff vanquishing the Panthers uh, in Oakland. That was my processing of all of that. I probably have to block it out so that I could write something coherent, but that was the way that I thought of all of this, the messaging from the ball game uh, yesterday and what I think racists are doing on the plantation. We'll just pull out and refine our code for how we dealt with unruly Negroes called Black Panthers from 50 years ago. We'll pull that out and use that right now for unruly Negroes that are calling themselves Black Lives Matter or just black people, period. I think many people have said that that's what uh, Black Lives Matter, that's the way white people, racists, are interpreting it. Black Lives Matter is just black people, period. And we're going to go after them. We're tired of all this. We've had enough of the uh, protesting and, and yelling, and, and we're going to go about squashing that uh, with great force. Maybe not. We'll see. Uh, I'll just check in. The person that called... Uh, 6492, did you have a, a quick comment before we wrap up? 6492? Uh, yes. Uh, hello. Um, I was just thinking, actually, I kind of had that conversation with my mom about, you know, the horrors of what white people have done to us. We were talking about the, you know, gator bait. And um, she said that the reason it's so hard to comprehend is that we would never do such hideous things. It would it would never cross our mind to do some of the things that they've actually done. 
And so, and, and, and they've kept it such a secret that um, when you stumble upon it, it, you know, it just kind of makes you just, you know, gives you chills, really. And so I think that um, it's going to be a long, slow process you know, to, to really understand the reality of what real history is. I've actually, you know, posted a few things of the, you know, the white Twitter people didn't want, you know, they were complaining about black history month. So I've been posting some of that stuff. Well, this is white history for black history month. You know, some of the stuff they've done to them. And they have, they've left me alone. They stopped trolling me, so. And um, I, I guess they don't want me to post more things. And um, I think that was it. Um, oh, about the football game. Oh, I know what it was. This is this this is another thing I've learned just listening to the cows. You know, before this, I thought games were just games. I didn't know that they were um, kind of uh, like like the football game. All the symbolism there was didn't pay attention to any of it. Fiction like movies and TV shows didn't pay any attention to anything. Didn't realize that that's really how they um, communicate and reinforce white supremacy. And, um, uh, you know, as Dr. Welting, she said that that's how they transmit that racism to our little um, preschool children. You know, they understand that black is bad and white is good at three years old. And so, as you just said, it's going to be a massive undertaking to try to undo some of this, but I don't think we have any choice. Either that or, or they're just going to destroy us completely, just bit by bit. And, uh, I, you know, I kind of think Donald Trump must be their guy. I didn't think he was really running, but um, kind of the way the um, things are falling into place, because I don't see Jeb, you know, coming back up or admit is, you know, he's kind of lurking in the background somewhere. So We'll see. So, and thank you for um, taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Um, that book, Body, or Alondra Nelson, I, she has multiple, but the book specifically on the Black Panther Party, uh, which I think is constructive, and we talked about on the program. She was here in the spring of 2012. It's Body and Soul, the Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. Uh, outstanding uh, material, and I would submit uh, most black people do not have an understanding of that information, and that's just another more evidence of how successful racists have been with regards to uh, the Black Panther Party. Uh, Huey P. Newton, others, Asada Shakur, uh, the uh, Angola Three, just run on down the line, Tupac's mother as well. Uh, at any rate, uh, we should be here on. Wednesday, uh, Mr. Bob Law, I know folks uh, were really appreciated the information he shared when he was with us last year, about this time last year, about a year ago, uh, when he was on the program. Uh, really looking forward to having him back to discuss the passing of Maurice White, uh, founder of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, I, I know when he was with us before, he really did a great job. And talking about symbolism, where he, he said, I might even make it the intro uh, audio segment, but he said that black people when during the same time period, Black Panther Party and other black people who were trying to do what they could to work against white supremacy racism, uh, when the Supremes, uh, James Brown doing I'm black and I'm proud, uh, other black people uh, doing 
work promoting black self-respect uh, and images of black people where we were not calling each other niggers, this retired fighter fighter brought up, but we were calling each other brother, sister, uh, and expressing admiration, Nina Simone, expressing admiration for other black people, trying to say things to uplift and inspire uh, other black people in that time period that, uh, excuse me, racists, white people, they took that and said, hey, we are not in the business of promoting music for the purpose of making money. We are in the business of promoting ideas principally ideas that support reinforce racism, white supremacy. We have a plan to take all of this, uh, all of this, you all saying you're Supremes and talking about how you love other black people. I'm black and I'm proud and all of that young, gifted and black. We have a plan to take all of that and have the type of music that you have now, which is uh, a significant difference. I'll leave it at that. I was, I was processing that. If you can just imagine uh, I wasn't born at that time, but if you can imagine growing up with that's the music that you're hearing, Marvin Gaye, Nina Simone, Earth, Wind and Fire. That's the music that you're hearing in relation to the music that for the most part that you hear now. Oh, my. <laughs> uh, oh, my daunting task in terms of what's in front of us, uh, the job that we have to do. But Mr. Bob Law, he'll be here on Wednesday. Very much looking forward to having him uh, back on the program. Same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern. 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, if you have gripes, complaints, questions, you can't find something in the archive, something didn't make sense, Gus was talking crazy, feel free to drop an email untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, as I said, sometimes uh, emails that go to my spam or they don't come at all or whatever the case may be, feel free to uh, send a new email if you. Uh, need a question answered or couldn't find something, whatever the case, have a guest suggestion, feel free uh, to drop it again and I'll do my best to respond until justice at gmail.com invest. If you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes.blogspot.com racism hyphen notes.blogspot.com listener supported counter racist radio uh, paypal buttons in the top right corner if you're not in the paypal drop me an email we will get you a physical mailing address that's it uh thanks for tuning in thanks for the folks that got their question in if you did not get to your question uh don't lollygag get your hand up get your hand up because uh, sometimes i do change uh when i go to the phone lines if i see that there are a lot of people who dialed in who have a question i'll go to callers earlier so if you know you have a question uh that you want to ask don't be bashful. Don't be shy. People have said that, too. They get shy about calling in and what have you. We're all victims here. <laughs> like, uh, get that out of your mind. Don't feel, you know, embarrassed or what have you. Just call in, uh, get your question, and we'll be ready to roll. Uh, that's it. Well, we'll see you all in about 48 hours. Uh, again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. That was in the Sublet's book as well, where they would give enslaved black people, give them a little rum so they can't think clearly, can't escape, uh, can't revolt, won't be causing us more problems. Uh, if you're going to be behind the wheel, passenger, pedestrian, you do not want to be under the influence. Buckle your seatbelt. Uh, you never know when it's going to be Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson looking to pull you over and cause astronomical problems for you, maybe even taking your life. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of racism. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate maximum 
black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.